do you not listen to? Um. <laughs> Chart music. <laughs> Chart music. Praise youngsters and welcome to the latest episode of Chart Music, the podcast that sniffs the droppings left behind by the hit parade. I'm your host, not even going to tell you my name because it doesn't fucking matter. What does are my special guests this week? Simon Price? Hello. Taylor Parks? Hello. Anything pop and interesting going on? Yeah, I had a minor operation a couple of weeks ago that turned out to be a bit less minor than I'd been led to believe, so I'm in fucking agony. But other than that, it's... Uh, oh, mate, it's it, just goes, it just goes from bad to worse, doesn't it? Yeah, but other than that, it's all good news. Here I am, the, the toyer that's always in reception for you, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> Simon. I normally say no at this point, but I am actually going to take the opportunity to shamelessly plug um, my no my club night. Um, yeah, so as, as I've mentioned a few times, um, and it's kind of relevant to this era that we're talking about today, um, I run a club night in Brighton called Spellbound, which is an alternative 80s night. And we've, yeah. we've got a couple of themed nights coming up that I wanted to flag up. Um, one of them is our Halloween party, uh, which is on Saturday 27th of October. And mm. that's basically your alternative 80s stuff, Goth, post-punk, new wave, scar, all that, you know, all that good stuff, plus typical kind of Halloween anthems and dress-up stupidity. But the one that's a bit more relevant um, to chart music, actually, is the one I'm doing after that Mm -hmm. in November, Saturday 17th November, Um, because November um, 2018, I don't know if you know, is the um, 40th anniversary of the launch of Smash Hits magazine. Um, oh, which is very close to our hearts, I'm sure. Indeed. Um, so we're having um, a smash hit special, which is basically Spellbound Goes Pop. So instead of all the kind of alternative nonsense, it's going to be more kind of, you know, sharp, clever, witty, uh, 80s pop. So it's all kind of ABC, Squitty Plitty, Haircut 100, Altered Images, all that good stuff. Um, so, yeah. Pricey plays pop. Absolutely. So I'm hoping that a few of the pop crazed youngsters in the Brighton, Sussex area um, might want to check that out. And you can get tickets at comedia.co.uk forward slash Brighton. There we go. Whoa. End of nice, commercial nice. break. Nicely plugged. Well, before we take one more step towards the monolith that is the latest episode of Top of the Pops that we're going to get a chatty little hands on, uh, we're going to stop for a moment and give thanks to the latest bunch of people who have given child support to the massive shitting baby that is chart music. <laughs> Those people are Celia Forbes, Albie Bran, Aaron Wright, Jared Driscoll, David Shaw, Charles McLean, Finlay Napier, Bruce Bower. I hope it's Bowie and not Bower. If it's Bowie, it should be Bower. So sorry about that, mate. That's how it's going down. Mike the Sonic Assassin, Avion Bedford, Ben Collins, Gary McKenzie, Andy Barrett and Steve Gibson. Thanks to all those very special people that now are in our very special gang. And if you'd like to join them and chuck a bit of money our way... All you got to do is let them little fingers type out www.patreon.com slash chart music. And if you are part of our Patreon gang, you are voting on the top 10 that is causing a, a, a causing a commotion, if you will, uh, amongst amongst the pop crazy youngsters. And I think it's time for the latest rundown. Hit the music. 
down two places to number 10, The Hadley Fist. New entry at number 9, The Fozzy Bear Motherfucker. Straight in at number 8, it's Denim Egg. Down three places, number 7, it's Seven Days Jankers. Last week's number 3, this week's number 6, B.A. Cunterson. Stuck at number 5, here comes Jism. <laughs> Straight in at number 4, it's Dave Lee Travis Bickle. This week's highest new entry at number three, Fun-Loving Cannibals. Stuck in the number two slot, David Van Day's Public Enemy. Which means, still at number one, it's Bummer Dog. Yes, get in, my son. You know, Bummer Dog's going nowhere, man. Yeah. Uh, everything I do, I do it for him. <laughs> Bummer Dog is all around. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was going to mention, I, w- I was actually at Spellbound uh, a couple of weeks ago, and um, one of the donors to our, our Patreon did come up to me, and of course, oh. you know, just wanted to say bummer dog, um, but they mentioned that they donated, I'm thinking maybe this is how I should monetize it from now on. If someone wants to approach me and say bummer dog at me, you just can't, you can't, you, you've got to pay first. You've yeah. got to actually, you know, I, I want some kind of evidence, I want some kind of screenshot of the transaction before I'll even listen to you bummer-dogging me. Funny you should say that, Simon, about proof of purchase and everything, because we are in talks with people at the minute, well, I'm in talks with people at the minute, about getting some merchandise sorted out. Oh, nice. Um, Yeah, yeah, get some T-shirts going just in time for winter. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, sit tight, Pulp Craze youngsters. There are going to be bonus tiers coming very soon. So, uh, going through the top ten, Dave Lee, Travis Bickle, what kind of music are they playing, Taylor? What do you think? Uh, uh, cold wave. Yeah, yeah. Fozzy bear motherfucker. What what kind of music do they play? They sound a bit similar to Bummer Dog. You know, we've already established that Bummer <laughs> Dogs are kind of a, a electronic blues band from the turn of the sixties, seventies. Yeah, the sixties, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Fozzy uh, bear yeah. motherfucker. I can hear. I can hear a bit of a uh, bit of zapper in there. You know, yeah. Bit of, uh, you know, like it's their dream to be on uh, straight records. This episode, Pop Craze Youngsters, takes us all the way back to August the 11th, 1983, and was brought to mind because of the uh, recent heatwave that we've had and has long disappeared. But uh, 83 was the last proper hot summer, wasn't it? Apparently so, but you know what? I don't really remember it like that. They all just sort of blur into one for me, the 80s summers. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember it being really hot? Yeah. Yeah, it was fucking roasting, man. I mean, one thing I... Re- well, there's many things I remember about this uh, about this period in my life, but one of them was deciding that I was going to get a suntan for the first time. <laughs> for those of you who've, who've not seen what I look like, I am. I am the palest motherfucker in the, in the whole world. I was um I was actually in going off on a big tangent here, but I was in Dubai for a few weeks doing some work, and uh, a, a family from Pakistan came up to me and started talking, and they wanted photographs of me with all the family and everything, <laughs> and uh, they were really nice people and everything. And then right at the end, I said to them, "Look, I just want to know why 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 are you taking photographs of me?" and and one of them just laughed and said, well, look, we can't deny it. You are the whitest person we've ever met in our lives. <laughs> this makes me feel a bit less less bad about my, my mum, who on a holiday in America once uh, went up to um, a, a Native American guy who was minding his own business <laughs> in a diner and, uh, and, and insisted on taking a photo of him. 
just because she'd never seen one before. And when she no. told me that story, I w- yeah, when she told me that story, I was just mortified. Oh but, no! Yeah, but it seems that it's it's a global thing, really, to do that. Was it's, that a no- she'd never seen a ma- Native American or a a non-white Celtic? Oh no, she'd. <laughs> <laughs> She'd never seen a Native American before, and oh, you know, fair dues. Uh, yeah, uh, I was I was uh, em- embarrassed on her behalf, even though she had no embarrassment whatsoever. <laughs> so anyway, I was dead pale, and I thought, right, this is the, this is the summer I'd do something about it. I think I think Club Tropicana might have had a hand in in my decision. So uh, obviously, what, you, I, you like I, the look I, of them on the sleeve there, like all oiled up yes. and lying on their sun lounges, George and Andrew. Yeah. You I, could, I thought, you know, I could have a bit. I could, I could go for a bit of that. I think. So um, I couldn't go um, to Spain or anywhere like that, but I could go on the bus to Lido, <laughs> which was uh, the estate next next to us, and had this old thirties outdoor swimming pool, and it was essentially every summer uh, they'd open the Lido up, and all the locals would make essentially council estate broth. And uh, I thought, no, I'm going to do a bit of sun tanning and uh, kind of like passed out. And uh, I got such bad, sun, such extreme sunburn from uh, from one afternoon uh, that my mum had to spend, I think it was like three quarters of a week's wage to buy something that would put the salt back into my body. <laughs> and uh, my skin was peeling so badly that my sister... Uh, used to give me 50p so she could sit on my back and pull the skin off in oh, sheets. It, it, it was absolutely a A3 sized sheets of oh, skin sh- coming off. There's never any point in me even trying because I'm freckly, right? So all that happens is yeah. at best the freckles join up a little bit, but that's as good as it gets. But music wise, I like to see, I, I kind of see 1983 as, as the last really truly diverse year of pop music. I remember being at school and I remember seeing skinheads. Uh, there were still mods. There were a load of grebs. Um, there were a load of futurists. Uh, there were a load of lads in funky belts. There were loads of uh, kind of like reggae, rasta stuff going on. The electro stuff was coming through. It was just such a proper pick and mix music of 1983, wasn't it? And I think it's going to be borne out in this episode. Yeah, well, that's that's the positive way of looking at it. I was uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking, I don't really have many memories of 83, personally. It's a bit of a blank year for me. It's almost a missing... Well, invent some. Yeah, well, yeah, I don't really remember my school class or anything I did, whereas 82 and 84 are pretty clear and detailed in my memory but I was thinking that's sort of appropriate for a year which uh yeah didn't really have much of an identity of its own it was Mm. there's a sort of transition happening here from like the old new pop to the new new pop um Mm. which is a bit less lively and a bit more self-important and I suspect the rediscovery of cocaine had as much to do with that Hmm. as anything else but um there's plenty of good stuff around but yeah you do get the you do get the sense of a a definite moment in musical history just uh just dissolving um and suddenly yeah just anything can happen and that can be good it can also be pretty bad yeah i'd agree um do you know what recently i i was looking through um the smash hits front covers of 
1983. Funnily enough, because I was putting together a, a montage, a video montage for uh, for my club night, and um, uh, yeah. I was looking at that um, amazing bl- uh, blog, um, "Like Punk Never <laughs> Happened," that Brian McCloskey yeah. runs. Hey, Brian, um, and. Yeah, it really struck me looking at the Smash Hits covers of '83 that um, the new pop really was throwing any old shit at us by this point, uh, because yeah. on the front cover you had like one hit or no hit wonders like Roman yeah. Holiday, Jimmy yeah. the Hoover, Matt Fretton, yeah. um, even Tracy with an exclamation mark uh, was yes. on the cover twice. I mean, bless her, I like her, but you know, on the cover twice in a year. Mm. So um, yeah, that. There was there was a feeling that um, you know maybe all all the great bands to come out of the new romantic era and the kind of subsequent new pop thing were on a bit of a hiatus. They were sort of um, you know figuring out what their second album was going to be, which is usually kind of some kind of big, tough, hollow, cocainey thing that had heavier <laughs> percussion and louder guitars than the than the one that actually people liked. Um, and uh, in, in the meantime, you know, American pop was starting to make itself felt a bit more. It was a big year for Michael Jackson. Mm. Only Culture Club really were um, a sort of huge new British thing and were yeah. really peaking in that yeah. year. So, yeah, it, it, was, it was a sort of sense of people looking around thinking, well, you know, where are we going? What's next? What's coming? The Aventis is over. Yes. At last, well and truly. I mean, that stuff's mostly all gone by 82 mm. those traces of the old decade but by 83 everything is it's as if the Aventis never existed isn't it by this point <laughs> it's almost almost like that but now everything is 100% 80s for better or for worse and mm. you're starting to see a bit of the the positive and the negative changes in British culture in the 80s already here like on the one hand it was this sort of dark period where deep thought and humility and empathy were starting to be drained from popular culture. But on the other hand, it was also the period where like spaghetti and salmon were no longer things that only came in tins. And (laughs) targets of bigotry suddenly found they had a few more friends than was the case in the swinging 70s. Um, To some extent, this is all illustrated or at least suggested here, sort of, in one way or another. Radio One News. So, in the news this week, Koo Stark leaves the country after it's revealed that she's been knocking off Prince Andrew. The USSR admit that one of their nuclear submarines sank with a loss of 90 lives in May. An American tourist in Londonderry is fined 100 quid for joining in on a riot and lobbing bricks at the police. Elizabeth Taylor announces that she's getting married for the eighth time. Jarmila Kratochvilova of Czechoslovakia and Carl Lewis break world records in the World Athletics Championship in Helsinki. But the big news this week is that the Funboy 3, the beat and tight fit have all split up. Oh my God, boys, the Aventis are dead. <laughs> the Funboy 3 split up already, Jesus. Yeah, they didn't barely been around. Did they? Yeah, yeah. I know. On the cover of the enemy this week, test department. On the cover of Smash Hits, Duran Duran. 
The number one LP in the UK is the very best of the Beach Boys, with 18 Greatest Hits by Michael Jackson at number two and Punch the Clock by Elvis Costello at number three. Over in America, the number one single is Every Breath You Take by The Police and the number one LP is Synchronicity by The Police. So, me boys, what were we doing in August of 1983? Well, we've done 1983 before, haven't we? Um, well, I certainly yes, have. We have. Uh, but anyway, you know, recap, I was 15, uh, living in Barry, um, about to start the fifth form at Barry Boys Comp. And this was my time of marker pen, graffiti and Molotov cocktails, um, which we've discussed previously. Um, absolutely skin, um, single parent family, uh, no telephone, no car, no pocket money, really. Um, but it didn't really matter because there was this one park bench where if I went out, I knew my mates were going to be there or thereabouts bunch of ne'er-do-wells and hoodlums mainly mm-hmm. um in terms of uh, youth culture i was still dressing like a sort of two-tone rude boy but two-tone itself had fizzled out so yeah. um in terms of what i was listening to i moved on to bands like dexies culture club big country and drumroll the style council um yes. but i was in this kind of sartorial no man's land um short hair still um <laughs> Silk flying yeah. jacket, um, red Fred Perry, stretch jeans, canvas basketball boots. And it wouldn't be till the following year that I started going full on Style Council Soul Boy. I mainly, in my mind, it's weird, um, sometimes you associate years with colours. I associate 1983 with the colour red, partly because of that red Fred Perry and partly because of I was still pretty obsessed with Liverpool Football Club and um, the red of my bad skin as well. <laughs> It was a and red you started year. Your periods. I started my yeah, started my periods, and uh, yeah, I was crying red tears after the Tories had won the election. Well, I was uh, just about to start the fifth year and final year at secondary school, and I really wasn't looking forward to going back to school because the previous end of term, I got debagged on the school field, <laughs> not by a dog, not by a dog, no, by about twenty youths, and uh, had my pants thrown to each other uh, above my head. And uh, and yeah, it, it was it was a fucking terrifying experience. But the the worst thing about it was I ended up obtaining the nickname Maggot Man. <laughs> it was cold. I was scared. Yeah, but who went on to be a male stripper? Them or you? Ask yourself. That. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So really, not looking forward to going back to school. Um, at, but also absolutely dreading leaving school and having to face the reality of Thatcher's Britain. So, yeah, this was like the last throw of the dice for my childhood, I think. Me and my mates, we'd spend a lot of time pulling moonies at buses on a big hill on our estate. Talking to girls, but only talking to girls. Just general fucking about, really. Um, Music-wise, completely full-on Style Council fan. Massively excited this month because, you know, they've got a new EP out, never mind a single. You know, just basically trying to be Paul Weller and failing dismally on all fronts i mean i i tried to gel my hair back like he does in the in the long hot summer video but i was using market hair gel instead of bro cream so uh it would kind of like uncurl itself like a crusty wank tissue uh after an hour or so uh but also the other thing was i really wanted to drink cappuccino didn't exactly know what it was and was too scared to ask couldn't find anywhere that that made it or sold it in town. But I came to the conclusion that cappuccino must be a mixture of coffee and tea. <laughs> <laughs> so for a week, I drank coffee and tea, a mixture of both. <laughs> and uh, I fucking hated it and felt sick. 
but no, man, that was my commitment to the to, to, to modernism. There's me thinking that um, <laughs> Haley, the tea lady off the call centre on BBC Three, in, invented uh, to coffee. Um, but there, no. there was um, I, I, I call it cappuccino, Simon. <laughs> Um, uh, a mutual friend friend of ours, uh, mine and Taylor's anyway, Andrew Muller, um, uh, Australian mm. chap, music journalist, um, mm. uh, tells a story of uh, the first time he went to Wales. And, and this would have been, uh, I guess, the early 90s, probably. And he went somewhere in the far west of Wales into a cafe that had just started um, selling cappuccino. It's like new cappuccino written in the windows. And he went in and ordered one. And what they did was they poured him a little cup of normal coffee. Then they got out a tin of squirty cream and squirted some <laughs> <laughs> And he was absolutely stunned, you know. <laughs> I forgot that story. Yeah. Well, then sprinkled on a bit of chocolate vermicelli. <laughs> So, what else was on telly this day? Well, BBC One kicks off with Breakfast Time, then Captain Caveman, Whirlybirds, Jack and Ore, The Wombles, and Why Don't You, before checking into the third test with New Zealand. Then it's News Afternoon, followed by Bagpuss, Back to the Cricket, then Play School, Hide Air, John Craven's News Round, the final of We Are the Champions, the Ugh. evening news, regional news in your area, Tom and Jerry, and then coverage from the first World Athletics Championships in Helsinki. BBC Two kicks off with the Open University in Play School, then shuts down for five hours before picking up the rest of the cricket. Then Alan Titchmarsh visits the Castle of May on the Penland Frith in Nationwide's Great Gardens. Then the history programme Distant Guns about the Foreign Legion. David Yip and Derek Martin of the Chinese Detective give us a guided tour of the East End in 6.55. And they've just started Wheels of Fire, a documentary series about modern India. ITV begins with Good Morning Britain, Sesame Street, Hopalong Cassidy, Mick Robinson in free time, <laughs> Hegarty Haggerty, Get Up and Go, The Sullivans, The News at One, Emmerdale Farm, A Plus Revisited, a repeat of the Jimmy Jewel sitcom Funny Man, then Shine on Harvey Moon, Hegarty Haggerty again, On Safari, the 60s American sitcom That Girl, The News at 5.45, Crossroads, Carry On Laughing, and they're nearly through with the song and sketch show P.S. It's Paul Squires. What the fuck is Haggerty Haggerty? Wait, 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 wait. Paul Squire. Oh, shit. He's another one of these uh, sort of Mary Hopkin, Chris Eubank, uh, Stephen Hawking type people who, uh, Wendy Richard. Who uh, S Dodgers spent his yeah spent his whole life having uh, S tagged onto his tail. Let me check. A te- I put a tenner on it. Shit, you're right. I put a tenner on it. Yeah, you're there right. You P- yeah, P.S. It's Paul Squire. <laughs> that kind of aggressive playground standoff. Put it there. Go on. Put it there. Put it there. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Ten quid. Yeah. Channel Four starts at half five with Car Fifty Four. Where are you? Bewitched. The Good Food Show and is now halfway through Channel 4 News. But meanwhile, what is Hegarty Haggerty? Oh, it, it, it was a load of storytelling. It was a, it was some kind of... Um, oh, Jack and Ori. It was some kind of... Yeah, storybook uh, thing, yeah. but uh, um, A shit ITV version of Jack and Ori, yeah. Yeah, uh, George Cole was oh. uh, the narrator. 
Here yeah. comes Jism. I do realise we are tramping on the memories of um, certain regional pop creations. Sorry, guys. There. I'm sure it was great. And, you know, I always wonder what other things were, because I used to look at Gus Honeybun. I used yeah. to, you know, you look in the, the TV listings and you see in, like, Westwood or TSW, Gus Honeybun was on. And I got it into my head for years and years and years that it must be an American crime series. <laughs> and Gus Honeybun was like this black detective who was really cool. <laughs> and what, what was it? What was it really? It was a fucking rabbit who, <laughs> who used to do uh, an equal amount of bounces to kids' yeah. ages. In the in the TV listings that, that we used to get, um, there were um, sort of four or five hours every day where it would just say, As London. And I thought there was a yeah. programme called <laughs> As London. And I wonder, what the fuck is that? And it's, it's taking up so much yeah. time. It must be amazing. Yeah, Puffin's Place as well. That was the other one. Yeah, what, with the, with the, with the eye in bracket? Yes, that's right. And it was and it was Gus Honeybun with a with a Puffin. Yeah, and Watu Watu. Oh, was, what was that? I don't know. I never saw it. It was only on in Channel or Border yeah. or somewhere like that. And in Wales, we had Hegarty Haggerty, but it was all spelt with Ws and Ys. <laughs> All right, then, pop craze youngsters, you know what happens now. It's time to shove the fist right up the arse of the summer of 1983. Don't forget, we may coat down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget. They've been on top of the pops more than we have. As always for Top of the Popsers of the early 80s, it's a two-host affair. Your first host for this evening is Richard Skinner. He's currently on Radio 1 presenting the documentary show Talk About right this very moment as Top of the Pops goes out. And in this episode, he's gone off to Mallorca on a package holiday to watch the youth try to cop off with as many other people as possible. It's going to be a bit of a handicap having Richard Skinner standing about watching you. Yeah, especially as, uh, it, okay, in this episode, Richard Skinner is 31. Yes, and he is. his hair is mm. greyer than mine is now. Um, yeah. He must have mm. seen an awful lot of ghosts. He must have seen, yeah. He's. Yeah, an awful lot of wrongness in Well, you know, him in Mallorca, it. it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what he's wearing in Mallorca, the kids are just going to be going, feds, 5 0, police, aren't they? Like <laughs> they see it. <laughs> Yes, you know, <laughs> and like, and going grey for him, right? It it isn't a calamity of genetics, but but it's like a matter of principle. Do you know what I mean? It's like his his personality is the colour of a skinned aubergine. It's it's the colour of the sky over Motherwell. <laughs> it's the colour of a blocked drain. Yeah, he's yeah. fish skin. Yeah, the the utility man of top of the pops, isn't he, Richard yeah. Skinner? I mean, it's hard to imagine there was ever even the faintest whiff of youth about him really but yeah it's really mm. noticeable on this he looks like someone's tipped a bag of flour over his head it's uh it's re- and he's he's not <laughs> losing any hair at all so all he needs is a you know bit of just for men and he's a yeah he's a trendy young radio one dj again yeah i think this would be the point when i realized that the top of the pops presenters were a bit older than they could have been <laughs> You know, they, they they really start to show their age by the early 80s. Pops moved on. Top of the Pops presenters haven't that much. And you know how in the 70s, the Top of the Pops presenters could pass themselves off as being a kind of 
swinging rock and roll kind of guy about town who just happened to be dropping in and presenting a radio show, yeah. presenting a TV show. Um, yeah. Skinner is totally the company man, isn't he? I mean, he's even wearing a white yeah. TOTP t-shirt here. It's like he's, he's, mis- he's Mr. Yes, BBC, he is. isn't he? Yes, and though that uh, yeah yeah, he's got a white top of the pops t-shirt with the with the red top of the pops logo and for the first time uh, the BBC has started flogging top of the pops merchandise. An advert in recent episodes of Smash Hits around about this time has a photo of two young sexy models demonstrating the t-shirts and the sweatshirts. Can you can you guess who they are or do nope. you know? Pepsi and Shirley. Wearing a T-shirt with a pair of Bobby Ball braces over them. Peter Powell. Oh, jeez. What, with a little little dimpled smile? He looks a bit hard, actually. Oh, wow. He looks like you've come... With the, with the braces, because they're, they're quite high-waist trousers. Yeah. He, he's got this look on his face as if you've strolled onto his manor in the 1930s and he's not having it. <laughs> he, he looks like he's just about to say, oi, oi. Yeah. <laughs> but next to him... In a top of the pop sweatshirt with a tasteful little top of the pops logo on the tit, who else but Simon Bates? Oh Jesus! Yeah, yeah. Your first choice, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> to sell to teenagers. Yes. Yeah. The headline: <laughs> Take the shirts off their backs. Ugh. Television's longest-running pop show is now well past its 1,000th edition. Now, for the first time, you can buy the tops you have seen on the programme and which are a smash hit with all the DJs. These BBC t-shirts and sweatshirts are obtainable only by filling out the coupon below. Do you want to take a guess how much a sweatshirt would cost you, including postage and packaging in 1983? £9.99. Oh, £8.50. Uh, not far. Okay. T-shirts. Um, £4.99. £3.50. Right, nice. Okay. Fucking hell, a bargain. Yeah. What a shame they didn't do a, a, a range of BBC show T-shirts. Like, I don't know, The Money Programme or, um, <laughs> or On The Move. Yeah. I think they did The Money Programme baseball cap. Yes. <laughs> and... and- Briefs with the epilogue written on it. Yes, yes. <laughs> Just um, a picture of, of the girl from the um, test card yes. and that weird toy. <laughs> which probably the wrongest merchandise you can imagine. The other host this evening is Tommy Vance. He's currently hosting the Friday Rock Show, but he's also doubling up as the voice of the all-important Top 40 rundown on Sunday afternoons. But oh dear, he's copping a bit of stick from Smash Hits readers. As a letter in a recent issue points out, While listening to the Top 40 a couple of Sundays ago, I heard Tommy Vance play the wrong side of Wannabe Starting Something by Michael Jackson and was annoyed to say the least. But this week he excelled himself. After playing the wrong side of confusion by the truth, he said that Elton John had gone down from 9 to 6 and called David Bowie's record <laughs> China Doll. All I can say is bring back Tony Blackburn. <laughs> Harsh. Uh, Harsh. TV on the radio, off the radio, and on the TV, isn't it? Um, yes. He was, right, so Tommy Vance was 43 at this time. Right. Yes, he was. Yeah, so we've we've got a combined age of seventy four up on that balcony right now. So he's got twelve years on Skinner, but as a viewer, you pretty much put them in the same age bracket because you know Skinner yes, you was so, so old. Um, 
I, I quite like Tommy Vance um, for one main reason, which is that he once said that the greatest moment of his life was going on stage at Donington and the entire crowd chanting, Tommy is a wanker. Um, I, th- yes. I, I thought that spoke well of him. And of course, yes. he's, he's, he's incredibly good value in Brass Eye. We've got to talk about that. Oh, when yes, of he's course. Been, he's been pranked into filming um, an orientation video for new prisoners. So he's doing his tough guy Cockney voice going, well, they mm. got you then. They gone and banged you up good and proper. Yes. And you gone and done it again. <laughs> I can't believe it, you little ponce. You gone and done yes. it again, ain't you? And then there's all that blatantly made up slang like uh, Gaza is a gas coin used as currency yes. to buy cigarettes. And Portillo means look out behind you. And yeah. uh, my favourite bit is where he goes... I'd like to take your bad half outside and do it in extremely physical discourtesy and then buy your good half a pint of foaming nut brown ale. (laughs) He's actually amazing in it. Whether he knew he was being pranked or not, he's just such good value. He really commits to it. I quite like him for that. Yeah, everyone likes Tommy Vance, don't they? Well, yeah. (laughs) Taylor? Yeah, the trouble with Tommy Vance (laughs) here is that he's turned up in a sweater that looks like a Romanian flag that's been left out in the rain. Yes. <laughs> and he seems kind of restricted compared to his previous appearances, right? There's no sense of him being a monster of rock. No. Right? He's just, he is just a dark brown voice here. They mm. might as well have got uh, Michael Jaston or Tom Baker <laughs> or Patrick Allen doing this you know one of the old voiceover reliables yeah, yeah. in fact they should have got michael jason to uh reprise his bravura performance from the st ival gold advert. Oh, only. Can you imagine how brilliant that would have been that's the new one by david grant and it sounds smashing <laughs> <laughs> yeah um and yeah he, he is wearing this he's wearing this sweater that my nan would have said it looks jazzy or maybe snazzy yes. <laughs> Something ending in Azzy. <laughs> Jazzy. Yeah. Um, it look, so he looks like he's been doused in three different cans of coloured paint. It's the sort of thing Giles Brandreth would wear on telly to be Oh, and, then, yes. and also, right, he's wearing a pair of uh, white and blue Adidas trainers. I'm a stickler for saying Adidas because it's good enough for Run DMC. It's good enough for me. Mm. Um, the exact style of which um, 20 minutes on Google could not help me to identify. But either way, they look a bit young for him, if you know what I mean. Yeah, but, but I, I quite like him here. He's he's gamely giving it his stentorian voice of authority thing, even even though he's totally a fish out of water. And there's yeah. there's only one masculine rock record for him to even enjoy on the show. Yeah, I mean we've done thirty one of these episodes now, and we still haven't touched upon the the boom in jumper technology in the eighties. <laughs> Really, you know, and it's yeah, and it's about time. I mean, we're we're just a year or so removed from the 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 mass ski jumpers, which were you know for for the time was were you know extremely um, cutting edge. Well, didn't but now they, didn't Breakfast TV launch in this year and uh, um, yes. BBC's one uh, whatever it was called? Uh, there was a craze among. Yeah, breakfast time. There was a craze among the presenters of breakfast time, like Russell Grant, and that that guy did the weather, Francis something, um, yeah. for wearing um, very pixelated. I was say Francis look. Bacon then. <laughs> <laughs> for wearing very pixelated looking uh, machine knitted um, jumpers. So yeah, yeah, it's all part of that. Yeah, the, I mean the machine technology had just come on in leaps and bounds. I mean my mate ran about this time. Uh, my best mate, his mum would order him. Um, jumpers just like the one Tommy Vance is wearing out of case catalogue yeah. or something like that and he must have had a wardrobe full of them 
and you, you know, I used to take the piss righteously out of him uh, for for not being uh, a stylist like me. But you know, I look back now, and it's like ten years ago. If he still had those jumpers, he would be the fucking coolest hipster daddyo in in, in town. In Nottingham. Yeah, well, in Nottingham, yeah. <laughs> As the cataclysmic explosion of Yellow Pearl fades into the distance, we're treated to the sight of Richard Skinner and Tommy Vance surrounded by the kids. Did you notice one of them uh, draping herself over Skinner? She's got, looks like she's got two hairdos. She's got like a, a San from the Fat Slags wedge kind of thing going on, but it looks like she's put a blonde wig on the top of it. <laughs> There's a really overexcited bloke right behind her who's jumping up and down. And she, at one point, she does this absolute grimace as if um, he's, he's, I don't know, oh, doesn't bear thinking about. It's a, a weird audience in this one. It's the, it's the usual sort Isn't of, st- like some zoo members stirred into the general public. Uh, and yeah. you can usually tell which is which. There's a sort of burly, mm. bearded bloke in the audience who... Dances like Theresa May. Yes, uh, it looks like an Olympic rower, <laughs> but not very, uh, not very at one with his own physicality. Yeah, you know what? I was thinking about this crowd, Al, when you were saying um, that '83 was the last gasp of there being lots of youth tribes and stuff like that. Because mm. I don't think this audience reflects that. I think this audience no. is, is one step further on, where everything's kind of mashed, yes. mashed in together, and uh, everyone dresses yeah. in a way that you probably have to call eclectic or something horrible like that um yeah you know there's lots of a, a, a melange yeah there's lots of rah-rah skirts lots of um headbands and bandanas but yeah, it's a lot of you, you couldn't look at anybody and it's like oh they're a ted or they're a mod or they're no. you know or they're a new romantic or anything like that it's no. just you just look at them and go they're a twat yeah they are 1983 people so eventually vance instructs us to observe the Topsichorian wonderment of the first act, David Grant with Watching You, Watching Me. Born in Hackney in 1956, David Grant was a former journalist at the East London and Essex Guardian and copywriter at the Island Records press office who came to prominence as a singer in the band Lynx who had four chart hits in the early 80s and were covered in chart music number eight. After the band split up in early 1983, Grant lost two stones, put in some contact lenses, straightened his hair, got some spats especially made for him and underwent a severe makeover, emerging as a solo artist. In an interview with Smash Hits in March of this year, he claimed, I just got desperate for a change. You know the way you get some time. A lot of things have happened to me in my life. I've got married and learned how to do the garden. And hopefully the way I look now reflects this. No, I don't think I look like Jeffrey Daniel. (laughs) 
This is his second solo single, the follow-up to Stop and Go, which got to number 19 in June of this year, and it's gone up six places from number 40 to number 34. Well, chaps, I don't know how old David Grant is, but he's a bit too young to have a midlife crisis, but this is this is clearly what it looks like, isn't it? I, I don't know what he's on about with that thing about um, his look reflecting the changes he's been through, including learning how to do the garden because he may not look like Jeffrey Daniel out of Shalimar he doesn't look like Percy Thrower either does he no he doesn't no <laughs> also he's wearing all white yeah, yeah this is not what anybody would wear to do the garden certainly not spats the spats are probably the worst thing to wear for gardening I think yeah knee high spats as well yeah I like them that they're kind of those Scottish pipers ones yes. aren't they <laughs> they go right up I think I think they kind of fly gotta be honest mm. uh, I'd, I'd wear them um but yeah, this image change he's gone through. I guess in Lynx, he was soul boy at the office, you know, straight yeah. from the East London and Essex Guardian from the day job. Um, as a solo artist, he's more kind of soul boy at the gymnasium slash nightclub. Mm. Um, and, and on the downside, yeah, I mean, I do like the spats, but there is that mushroom head look caused by that toweling headband. Yeah. That's not a good look. And it wasn't a good look for. Brighton Hove Albion Steve Foster no, in that year's FA Cup final not. and it's it's not a good look for David Grant here his hair looks like Frank Spencer's beret because <laughs> that, that headband sort of bisects his hair and creates a, an unfortunate ridge and the top bit yeah. sort of droops over the sides a bit so it's not good but you know in a way fair play to him for for dancing in knee-high spats you know what I mean? And for and for being a heterosexual black man, perfectly happy to be this gay as part of yeah. his act. I don't know if he realises mm-hmm. quite how gay he looks, but no. he, he does it, and fair play to him. It's just a shame that this is all he does, and this is all he's got. Yeah, I mean, Tommy Vance is very keen to draw our attention to the dancing ability of David Grubb, but there's not much of it there, is there? No, he's not great. I don't agree. I, I think he can dance. Um, I think he's got some moves. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a knee slide, um, there's a star jump, there's that kind of semi-moonwalk yeah. yeah. thing. And the audience look in awe of him, like they've never seen such Terpsichorean wonders. <laughs> there's a girl at the front who's clapping so hard that her leather cap falls down in front of her face. Um, we'll, we'll see her later, by the way. It's all a bit mad Lizzie to me. Obviously, we've seen Jeffrey Daniel in Top of the Pops. And uh, that's another landmark moment that you can put up there with the episode that we covered in the last uh, chart music. But what we're getting here is essentially shaking Shalimar, isn't it? <laughs> I suppose. Well, what it is, he can he can do the steps. When you see him doing his routine yeah. that he's learnt, he can do it. But in between that, when he's kind of moving from podium to podium and just trying to freestyle a few mm. moves... Um, he looks like a drowning man yes. who doesn't yet realise he's been fished out of the sea. <laughs> it's just, it, it seems to have no fluidity at all, no sort of grace in his natural movements when he's not following the routine. That sounds a bit like, um, I, I saw Britney Spears a few weeks ago at Brighton Pride, and um, she, you know, she's very choreographed, she's got all these moves, but in between the moves, she stomps about um, as if she's got various marks on the stage that she has to get to. And yeah. it's as if she's been shouted at by a fitness instructor, right? Go there, go there. And she oh, just kind of stomps like, about. Like in the generation game. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah, yeah. Also, he's a bit um, upstaged because Zoo are in full effect. Yeah. So, you know, I was watching Downtown Julie Brown 
dance. Mm. You know, she's pretty good. And last, you know, last time we saw downtown Julie Brown in a zoo state, um, mm. she was dressed up in a an outfit that looked like a Victorian paedophile had tried to build a sex doll out of toffee wrappers. <laughs> and I thought it looked great, whatever that says about me. But it's a year on, and this time she's done up sort of like Miami Vice ahead of time. Yeah. And it's, along with the rest of Zoo, she's doing that dancing that belongs in a fitness class, not a pop yes. music show, you know. It's yeah. athletic, but ugly. It looks, yeah. It looks like if you were wearing two hats and they both caught fire at the same time, and you had to throw <laughs> them both on the ground and stamp them out alternately, <laughs> but they landed inconveniently far apart. <laughs> yeah, it's very pineapple dance studio, isn't it? Very it's like much you're so. You're to yeah. be wearing a crop top that says Agnes B on it. Um, <laughs> um, but the thing is, is that is that during the middle eight when. Uh, David's going into one of his move-busting routines. Uh, the, the camera cuts from him to Julie Brown, so the floor manager's already come to a decision about, about Mr Grant, I feel. Well, I yeah. wanted to talk about the sort of floor management and the direction of this, because it's interesting that David Grant runs through the crowd and onto the stage. Yeah. It's, like a, it's, it's like an evangelical preacher or like Leslie Crowther in The Price is Right. Yeah, yeah, or the pink windmill kids. Right. Yeah, because he, they actually start under the balcony, doesn't it? Yeah. He's like a he's like a troll under Tommy Vance's bridge. Yeah, it's like he's crashing the party in a way. Um, so we're in that phase of Top of the Pops where there's there's no attempt to pretend that it's a live performance for mm. for solo singers certainly. Um, yeah, because there are no musicians in sight here. There's just loads of balloons, so many balloons. Um, oh yes, while, while the singer hops around from podium to podium, and, and we'll, we'll see that later on in the show as well. Very ungainly, yeah. I felt. I mean, one thing about the balloons was um, we, we, he holds one halfway through, and we and we get to see that they're all branded with the Top of the Pops logo, which was a nice touch. Yeah, yeah. Should have made some condoms to go with the, uh, the T-shirts and sweatshirts. <laughs> Mind you, it's only 1983, isn't it? Yeah, condoms weren't needed yet. We didn't know about all that stuff, yeah. No, Chris Baggs did us. <laughs> But the uh, the constructed reality of Top of the Pops, where you're meant to be able to look at it and at least kid yourself that there's some kind of live performance happening, that's kind of mm. been put to one side, hasn't it? Because because uh, yeah. solo singers are just sort of dropped into this party universe where yes. um, it's, it's it's quite blatant that they're just you know lip syncing. Yeah, but I mean, as we were saying, the podium, the jumping from podium to podium, it was it was very awkward for him, and you can actually see it on his face as he prepares to jump from one to the other. He's he's not happy, and he wouldn't be because all the zoo wankers are in the way, and there's balloons and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's not. I can't imagine Cole Lewis going through the same uh, visual obstacles as David Grant did here. No, and it would have been one of the greatest <laughs> moments in Top of the Pops history if he'd missed. Like yes. um or like, you know, done a Jimmy Percy, but or, or like that that weatherman on this morning, that, yes. that that now disgraced guy who fell in the um Albert Dock in Liverpool. No, the, I think the really awkward thing at the end, he does he does one last leap from podium to podium and then drops on his knees and and I I, I do believe he's trying to do a sex, but he actually <laughs> the facial expression is 
of a sheep that's being tossed off by Simon Bates <laughs> into a test tube. <laughs> so it's really, yeah, it's not, it's not a good look. Does anyone else remember this song, by the way? Because I, I know that every episode there's at least one song like this. Oh yeah. That, I've got no. I mean, this. I I've got no recall of it, and nor will I have. Yeah. If you ask me again tomorrow, it's it's very forgettable. Yeah, yeah, I remember this very well. It was the Do you? Uh, one of the you know, one of the very few funk songs inspired by Jeremy Beadle and Game for a Laugh, isn't it? <laughs> Fuck's sake! Yeah, I was God's thinking sake. that. The trouble is that um, Brit funk was sort of deflating the same way that uh, a lot of new pop was. And it sort of sounds nice, but it's just it was less intriguing and less exciting and a, a bit short on ideas. And I mean, really, all you can say for this record and this performance is that for 1983, it's nothing if not contemporary. You know, there's really only one two year period in history where this makes any sense. And people call that dated, but I, I like it because it's meant to be pop music and time and place is important. But yeah, there's no there's no time or place in which this is an mm. exceptional record, or indeed a terrible one, because it, I mean this might possibly be the most average record of mm. the year. You know, uh, you can't put it down too much because there's countless records like this which are much worse. But at the same time, there's nothing really interesting no. or unique about it. You know, the only one of his from roughly this time that was interesting was you know that record yes. mated Jackie yeah Todd Rundgren Jackie cover, Graham yeah, yeah it's a, a t- it's just because it's a totally different sound so it's like part soul ballad and partly heavily produced mm. adult pop um but I mean that's a little bit later I suppose where the well was dry and a, a new approach was kind of forced on him so the following week, watching you, watching me, soared 17 places to number 17 and would eventually spend two weeks at number 10, his biggest solo hit. The follow-up, Love Will Find A Way, got to number 24 in October of this year and was his last top 40 hit as a solo artist. But he'd get to number 5 when he covered Could It Be I'm Falling In Love with Jackie Graham in April of 1985. Watching you, watching me. Now the highest riser in the chart, the biggest new entry in the chart is this one. It is the Style Council from Opari. This is the Long Hot Summer. Fans, flanked by assorted 80s twats, is still impressed by David Grant's dancing and then introduces the video of Long Hot Summer by the Style Council. While the corpse of Jay Aston stares at him. Um, and then when he announces what the song is, she t- suddenly does this excessively astonished face, like a, like a mum 
pretending that she's never seen the Christmas present that her three-year-old daughter has just unwrapped. It's a beautiful moment. (laughs) And then introduces Long Hot Summer by the Style Council. We've already covered the Style Council in chart music number 22, and this is their third single, the follow-up to Money Go Round, which got to number 11 in June of this year. It's the lead single from the EP, The Style Council à Paris, which reflected Paul Weller's new Europhile direction, but the video, which we see in full here, was filmed by the River Cam in a tribute to the 1981 TV series Brideshead Revisited, with Paul and Mick Talbot pissing about on a punt while drummer Steve White portrays a bongo-playing Eurostalker. <laughs> it's this week's highest new entry at number eight, and... Fucking hell, I don't even know where to begin on this. <laughs> so, <laughs> pack a lunch, pop craze youngsters. We could be some time on this one. They are punting on the cam, to quote Marillion, uh, from the same year, I think, um, <laughs> in Espadrilles. Um, yeah, Mick doing all the punting, you notice. Yes. Um, Paul reclining and catching a tan. And yeah, the drummer, Steve yeah. White, dressed as a sort of Breton-shirted beatnik, isn't he? Pestering yes. them with his with his bongos. Um, at one point, they reenact uh, Edouard Manet's Déjeuner Soulèbre, uh, but most yes, of the time it's uh, reminiscent of the film of Another Country or the Merchant Ivory adaptation of E.M. Forster's Maurice or the TV yeah. series of Evelyn Waugh's Brideshead Revisited. Anything that involves posh people being a bit gay in England. Um, yes. Usually starring Jeremy Irons or Rupert Everett or Hugh Grant. That lot. Um, mm. And and the comments underneath this video on YouTube are yes. hilarious. Um, yes. Usually along the lines of, it's a bit gay. And, um, and of course, we've got to talk about the fact this isn't even the uncut version. Al, do you want to talk about that? Oh, fucking hell. So, yeah, round about this time, there were rumours <laughs> that go around the school that, you know, so-and-so was gay because of some at the said or they'd accidentally grabbed someone's bollocks in rugby or they still liked that band, even though there was one bloke in it who was gay. And, you know, it was my turn. I, I can't remember how it started, uh, but I know for a fact that I was absolutely terrified of the girls in our school. And uh, one of them just used to tease me like a bastard. And one time in a drama class, she just suddenly leant over to kiss me on the neck and I scraped my chair back about 20 feet. And the best fighter in the school who was sat next to me, he just looked me in the eye and said, fucking hell need them. Now I know you're gay. And, uh, and that was it. So now the three things that were known about me at school that number one, I was maggot man. Number two, <laughs> I might possibly be gay. And uh, number three, I was the biggest style council fan on the estate. So yeah, when this video came yeah. out, I was like, oh, fucking no, 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 no. It confirmed yeah. everyone's suspicions. <laughs> well, yeah, pretty much so. Because there's one scene in the, uh, well, there's a couple of things. I mean, let's talk about the scene that we, we actually see. Uh, yeah, okay. In the, in, on the top of the pops performance, um, Paul Weller's kind of like leaning on, uh, leaning, sort of laying back in a punt with. Uh, he's got a kind of like a button-down short sleeve shirt that's completely opened up. He's got sort of espadrilles and he's wearing cutoffs and everything. And um, yeah, you know, fair enough. It's a hot day. He's got his ghetto blaster next to him. You know, you could, you got to do all that kind of stuff. But he's basically lying there, rubbing himself up. He is. Paul but, Weller's right. essentially being provocative at us, isn't he? You see, um, I, I was thinking of this song recently because we were in the midst of a long, hot summer. Yes. And, and um, 
it seemed that I'd misremembered the video and so had everyone else, um, mm. which is, you know, an interesting phenomenon, a, a case of mass false memory syndrome. Because yeah. you talk to anybody my age, we all remember Mick Tolbert stroking Paul Weller's hair um, in mm. the video. But when you look on YouTube, um, all that happens is that Weller strokes his own shiny, hairless torso in the manner you describe. So yeah. I, I I started a Facebook thread about this. I did a bit of investigation, and on further investigation, it turns out there was a more homoerotic version of the video, and it was shown yes. only once by Timmy Mallet on TV. But enough of us <laughs> saw... Yeah, Timmy Mallet. <laughs> but enough of us saw it that that stuck in yeah, our minds. Yeah, I saw that. And, and yeah. it's, it's as if he's trolling the jam lads, isn't it? Um, yes, totally. This was the highest new entry straight in at number eight. And all right, not exactly the heady days of the jam straight in at number one a year earlier. But he no. still retained a loyal fan base. But they were becoming mm. an increasingly confused fan base by all this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, the the earlobe stroking. The, right. that, 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 I know that happened because... Every time I ran into my mates, the first thing they would do is lie on the ground and pretend to be Paul Weller and Big Tolbert <laughs> and stroke each other's earlobes <laughs> in an attempt to wind me up. And uh, yeah, it kind of worked, I have to say. So, so is this song traumatic for you now? No, well, no, because like a, a the triggering thing, is, thing. I, I heard the song before I, I saw the video. You know, I was yeah. my favourite band. I've got a new single out. You go out and you buy it, and you, you know, maybe the first time you hear it is when you play it yourself because it's not even been on the radio yet. And the minute I heard it, I thought, "Oh my god, this is the best Paul Weller song ever." I fucking love this song, and it's glorious, isn't it? Yeah. It's fucking amazing. We will we will talk about the song in a moment. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. but then I saw the video. It's like, oh no, what's going on? Yeah. Well, let me let me take you back here because I already said I don't have many memories from 1983. Here's one I do remember. <laughs> um, I got into the jam sort of just slightly late because of my age. So it was mm. about 83 that I started to like him, mm. um, and then my mate bought the cassette of Snap, their yeah. posthumous greatest hits album. Uh, appropriately titled because it was a double play cassette. So <laughs> the tape was rather thin, prone to breaking, especially in the portable, cheapo cassette players we all had. So the tape got passed around and borrowed by different people. And it was like Russian roulette because <laughs> the kid who owned it was quite hard. And if it snapped in your tape player... You're going to be in trouble. That's like the school guinea um, pig at my place because it was it was it was going to die <laughs> on someone's watch. It was just past the parcel. It was really cruel. Mm. Yeah. yeah, but I was a sort of a an atypical jam fan at my school in that I wasn't the exact type of person Paul Weller would write songs attacking, which they all were. You yeah. know, sort of pointlessly violent and ultra macho and obliteratively homophobic. Um, but it, it so began a long history of playing it both ways because it meant that because I liked the jam I was in with those kids so there was no chance of me being beaten up so that was useful. Mm. Um, but anyway, the jam were over. So what was current for jam fans of our age was the Style Council. Now, yeah, as you say, one of the most entertaining things about the Style Council was the glee with which they trolled the old jam fans, right? <laughs> yeah. And again, I was out of step with my peers in finding that good and thinking, yeah, good for him, you know. Um, so I remember the first time I saw this video. I was at my mate's house after school. So it might even have been 
this very edition of Top of the Pops. So it came on and we said, hooray, it's the Style Council. And this <laughs> odyssey of awkward homoeroticism commenced. <laughs> and I looked over at my mate, the jam fan supreme. And, and he stroked his ear. <laughs> I think it's fair to say that Michael Caine in Get Carter looked more relaxed watching that <laughs> film with his niece in it. <laughs> and when it was over, I remember my mate, who later went to prison, started to explain to me, or more to himself, what Paul Weller was trying to achieve with this video. And he said, he's taking the piss out of pufters. He's acting all puffy as a piss take to have a go at bummers like Duran Duran. <laughs> Exact words. I've never forgotten them, right? Now, <laughs> this interpretation was sort of a bit predictable coming from a kid who swore blind that the lyrics of practically every jam song were a hymn of hate towards male homosexuals. Really? <laughs> yeah, I remember him assuring me that the words to English Rose were... I will return to my English rose, for no bums will ever tempt me from she. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm not going to be gay. I'm going to have it off with a woman. Um, and also, his reading of David Watts, the Kinks cover, mm. was interesting too, because he insisted that it went, he is so fancy and so gay, even though it plainly <laughs> didn't go like that. And I only wish what that I knew then what I know now. So I could have explained to this lad, with moody pictures of Paul Weller all over his bedroom walls for him to stare at yes. every night, that yes, this was indeed a song about a young gay man. But no, the tone is not condemnatory. Very far from it. Uh, Actually, no, thinking about it, I don't wish I knew that then, because if I had said that, it'd have punched me in the teeth. <laughs> but there you go. But the, the nice thing, yeah... It, just like the rest of you, I would imagine, at some point in the long, hot summer that just recently passed me by, mm. I was inspired to, to hear this song again. So I fired up YouTube, watched the video, and found a beautiful comment underneath, which said, Paul Weller was my hero as a kid. No wonder I have turned out to be gay. <laughs> a touching personal testament. Mm. But the nicest thing, by the way, about this... Video, aside from the fact that it's filmed around the University of Cambridge, so that Paul Weller could say, Oh, yeah, I went to Cambridge. Oh, what did you do at Cambridge? I made a pop video, reclined shirtless next to a cherry bakewell, which is <laughs> the best detail in this video. But what's funny is that Merton Mick has got this yeah. authentically aesthetic look to him, right? Mm. Just naturally, right? He's got that sort of, uh, that sort of flossy blonde hair. Mm. and uh, quite an aesthetic look to his face. And he looks totally comfortable, totally natural in the blazer with the pocket square and mm. the white trousers and, you know. Uh, whereas Paul Weller looks like a razor boy still, <laughs> you know. So it gives these overtones another twist because they don't look like carefree young lovers. They look like a prison couple. Yes. <laughs> Especially as, <laughs> as Mick has to do all the punting. He gets a bit creative with the handle of the uh, of the of the barge pole, doesn't he? For a bit, I, I, yeah. 
but he doesn't doesn't really bring it off. Not that creative, so to speak. <laughs> no, no, no. Simon Bates would know how to do that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, if anyone was going to turn me gay in 1983, it definitely would have been Paul Weller rolling about on a picnic blanket. But, you know, to a 15-year-old lad on a council estate, being gay didn't look like the wisest career move. And, and anyone who was must have been fucking rock. Yeah. And, you know, speaking now as, you know, as a bisexual who's never had a homosexual relationship, (laughs) you know, I look back at that time and I see that, yeah, I was homophobic, but in the proper sense of the word. I mean, to me, homophobia doesn't mean hating gay people or being scared of another man coming onto you. It's the fear of another man coming onto you and you actually liking it and realising that your whole world's going to change just because of who you want to lob it up and, you know, just fretting about what your mates are going to think. Well, they already thought it, to be fair. <laughs> yeah. I would love to be gay. Not when I was a kid, but now. It looks fucking <laughs> no. brilliant. Alas, it wasn't to be. But the song? What a great record this is. Though. Fucking brilliant. It's a great record. Isn't it the first use of synths on a Weller record? As far as I can remember, it is anyway. I think it is, you know. Which is interesting in itself. Mm. This week, I was absolutely fuming that uh, it only got to number eight. Because you thought it was that good and it deserved it, yeah. Yeah. It's that weird thing, isn't it, when you're a a pop fan uh, of of this age. You kind of want your favourite bands to go to number one, but you don't want too many people to to like what you Mm. like. I quite like the fact that um, Weller was trying his hardest to kind of reset his fan base because it came Mm. at the right time for me. Because um, I did quite like the jam, but I wasn't by any means one of those jam lads. Um, and, th- you know, that whole vibe around their fans was really off-putting to me. So when he came mm. back with quite a radically different sound and look and aesthetic, um, it was great because it allowed me to get in on the ground floor of it, if you know what I mean, and and and, mm. and totally commit to it. And I did. I mean, we've mentioned in a previous episode <laughs> that I got that uh, white Mac um, like he wears on the front of Money Go Round. Yes. Um, I got a, a, a yes. knockoff version from Melandi of Carnaby Street, and one of my mates took great glee in pointing out that it looked like a lab coat. But I also got um, a pair of black and white tassel, like brogue tassel loafers, which were amazing. And if I had them now, I would wear them now. Um, but yeah, he had he had a huge effect on the way I thought and and the way I dressed. But this yeah. song, I mean. You know, I, I suppose what one thing I was looking to him for was politics, and there's none of it on this. So, yeah. um, in a way, it was a bit of a, a, a longer and a bit of a lull. Um, I, I I loved it, but it almost felt indulgent. It's like, um, come on, you know, it's all very well making this beautiful record, but uh, what are we going to do mm. about Thatcher? <laughs> oh, he's allowed to have a day off from Thatcher bashing, isn't he? I guess so. Yeah, and have a nice, nice picnic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love things like um, Paris Match or Paris Match on the Café Bleu album, which, again, there's no politics mm. in that. Um, no. But, yeah, my, my copy of uh, Café Bleu um, was cassette as well, and the tape was as well-worn as Taylor's copy of Snap by the sound of it. Absolutely loved yeah. it. I mean, looking back now, the embarrassing thing, the really embarrassing thing, isn't the sort of rolling about, feeling yourself up bit, but, but Paul Weller dancing, he's not a very good dancer. Well, the thing is, I, I'm going to cut him some slack here because he's trying to do some northern soul moves on a fucking picnic blanket wearing deck shoes. It's not easy. No, well, it's surrounded by Rammel, <laughs> you know, um, Mr. Kipling boxers and yeah, yeah. God knows what else. I think this is 
probably the best Style Council track because although it's trying with all its might to be what it can never be, which is a modern American soul record, it only fails in irrelevant ways. Yeah. Right? By which I mean it doesn't sound 100% authentic, mm. but it sounds completely beautiful. And it's, of course, it's got his usual yeah. sort of pinched, rat like, Surrey gutter snipe vocals. Um, I think it might have been. David Stubbs, who once <laughs> described listening to Paul Weller singing Soul as like watching a fat man trying to climb over a wall. But, <laughs> but here it works brilliantly because it fits the frustration and the repressed anger of the lyrics. And it, it doesn't sound like this powerful, impassioned roar. It sounds like a skinny white bloke sort of drifting in dazed melancholia you know unable to take mm. control and there's nothing phony about it because the backing track is as good as anything coming out of america at that time even though it clearly didn't yeah. you know yeah it sounds just as good um i mean i love all the star council singles from this period really um the only one i'm not so keen on is money go round because it's yeah. terse and humorless and it sort of doesn't have the brains or the wit to pull off those sort of slightly six formy lyrics. And this is the yeah, problem they had later, I think, with mm. like our favourite shop album had the same sort of thing going on. It was had this musical eclecticism, even more so. Yeah. But it got to the point of just splashing around, you know, doing mm. pale pastiches of different styles that they weren't cut out for. And it all had mm. those sort of half-baked political lyrics that sort of spoil the last Jam album, right? So I have a completely different attitude to Simon on this, is that I can take Paul Weller seriously as a teen angst merchant and as a sort of basic kind of social comment writer and as a storyteller um, and as a writer of sort of vague, essentially, essentially meaningless motivational lyrics which are redeemed by the spirit of the music, right? Like absolute beginners, mm. which... Shout to the top. Yeah, yeah. But what I can't take him seriously as is a political writer because suddenly he's talking about concrete, complicated, uh, very real things, and he can't do them justice because to do that within a pop song, you need to be very, very articulate and very knowledgeable mm. and very in control of how your words and music interact, which are three things that he never was. So you get stuff like Walls Come Tumbling Down, which is... Brilliant. But genuinely one of the unintentionally funniest pop songs I can think yes. of. Yes, it is, um, and it's still brilliant. <laughs> yeah, I enjoy listening to it, but I just can't take it seriously. So I mean, it's to me as a lyric, it's barely an advance from time for truth you know he's his pro-tory <laughs> anti anti callahan song i knew you was gonna bring that yeah, song from when up. he was 18 which is politically far worse but artistically not so very far away mm. but when he took those political feelings and put them in the context of people's lives in songs like burning sky or man in the corner shop or or so even come to milton Keynes, which is a silly song but a, a really good one um, he was brilliant in this sort of gruff, inarticulate way. It sounds like what it is, like a naturally bright but almost totally uneducated British kid, you know, like a product of the English class system and the 
suburban secondary modern school, creating sublime popular art within the limitations of his own experience and his own vocabulary. Mm. And that's, that's what makes them really beautiful. Yeah. That, um, that, that dazed melancholia yeah. that Taylor refers to there is something that Weller was surprisingly good at and people don't often give him credit for. And he had been yeah. for a while. I mean, even if you go back to something like no, the bitterest pill I ever had to swallow, which um, was was um, a problem for some jam fans that I knew. You know, he's, he's oh, what's he doing, making this kind of emotional mm. record? This kind of, you know, it's, it's a bit girly and a bit wet. Yeah. But um, I, I mean, I loved it. He's about girls. He must be gay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I remember um, there was. Um, I only just remember this actually when we were talking about it. There was a kid at my school who had a Parker. He was a total mod, and on the back of his Parker. He had written in the same kind of cursive calligraphic font as the record sleeve, the bitterest pill I ever had to swallow in huge letters. And that struck me as a really weird thing to stick in the back of your Parker as a mod, <laughs> yeah. you know. But you know, he, he must have really liked that song. You talk about our favourite shop and everything. And the Style Council did keep the, uh, the homoerotic stuff up, didn't they? Because on the cover... Of our favourite shop, there is a post. There's a, there's a postcard of a line drawing done by uh, one of the designers or something, uh, which you, you you can only see like Paul Weller standing up and Mick Tolbert kind of like lying on a bed face down, and on the top left it's got like a magazine-y kind of uh, font that that just says "Homo." Yes, it does. <laughs> For that. <laughs> I only had it on tape. I missed out on that. And of course, for the walls come tumbling down, uh, they they made Mick Tolbert up to look like Uncle Monte about (laughs) two years before the the film came out. (laughs) Yeah. But surely at that point, everyone knew that he was knobbing the backing singer, not the Mm. keyboard player. Yeah. Yeah. So a bit of the air was let out of that ambiguity. Mm. I don't know. I'm thinking, you see, I'm not, I'm not sure the Star, the Star Council were ever consistently as good as the Jam in terms of the actual record, but mm. consistency wasn't what they were going for, so no. it doesn't really matter, you know. And I mean, there's things I never liked about them, like their stupid name, right? Like, yeah. when for a start, when you think about what he could have called his new band, he was like the biggest pop star, you know, in Britain. Mm. He could have called them anything. They could they could have been the sex heroes, you know what I mean? Or <laughs> or Egg Christ. But he <laughs> went for something as as wazzy as the style counts. I mean like it's a, the style famously being something like sex appeal or authority. Mm. You know, the more you have to tell people you've got it, the less they believe you. Mm. Um and you know, his response to the understandably frustrating situation of being in the jam and trying to move into playing soul music when it was just him and a rhythm section that sounded whiter than Sam Moritz on Christmas Eve. Um, <laughs> you remember when he got in that daft horn section on the last few jam records that sounded like the fucking Muppets because he thought it was <laughs> going to turn him into Sly and the Family Stone. Really didn't. Um but with the Star Council, he still went for that very sort of suburban white boy sound, you know, mm. that that version of soul music, which when deeper and more interesting options were available. And I don't like the sort of maddeningly patronising positivity 
that they used to go in for. You know, all that where you get the record on the back, it would say like, "Look sharp, be young, join CND" or something like that. <laughs> and it's to me that stuff's just laughable. You know, I think a lot of that was yeah, Paolo Hewitt, who I, yeah, think, I think was it the cappuccino was. kid, was he not? And yeah, 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 yeah um, I believe so. I yeah. kind of disagree with you about the horn section because I'm not saying that they were super funky or, or anything like that, but um, they're a bit of a gateway drug for me because hearing stuff like um, the Jams version of Move On Up on the double gatefold single of Beat Surrender was the first time I'd heard that song, and um, it, it had a real energy to it, and yeah, it and yeah. it did sort of take me into real soul music. Yeah, this is the thing about the Style Council. If you were there in the early 80s when they were happening and you're in your late 40s, early 50s now, you've gone one of two ways. You know, you've either listened to Paul Weller and said, oh, I'll I'll listen to this song, I'll listen to that song, and you've built up a fucking brilliant record collection. Or you're wearing a paisley scarf in Weatherspoons with a fucking haircut (laughs) that makes you look like Ivy Tilsley banging on about how um, Sikhs can <laughs> don't have to wear helmets when they're on the scooters. Just moaning about it. It's either or. You've gone, yeah. you've gone one way or the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, I remember, Absolutely. I mean, the first, my favourite band, Sly and the Family Stone, first time I ever heard them properly was at the Royal Concert Hall in Nottingham in early 1984 uh, because it was being played probably by Gary Crowley or someone like that as a warm-up for the Style Council gig I was at. And I just went, oh fucking hell, they're good. If he like, if he likes that, then then I'm checking it yeah. out. I'll yeah. tell you what though, the 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 two sorts of people that you're talking about that grew up listening to Paul Weller, the people who, who went deeper into music and deeper into thinking, versus the sort of the well ends, you know, sort of uh, free <laughs> Tommy people. It's uh, I reckon that that split uh, aligns perfectly with the split of. Who was trolled by the Style Council and who thought it was fucking brilliant, right? I reckon precisely mm. you can uh, you can separate those people along those lines. Um, because yeah. I always thought the saving grace of the Style Council, just apart from how good a lot of the records were, was exactly what the old Weller fans hated about them, which was the dry sense of humour. Because the jam had no sense of humour, right? None whatsoever. Mm. There's not a shred of wit... <laughs> Or, or, or a smile on any of those records. There's the odd ham-fisted attempt in the videos, but you know that's another matter. So because of that, when Paul Weller started taking the piss, it really came out of nowhere and it wrong-footed everyone. Yeah. And it turned out he did actually have quite a quite a good dry sense of humour. Yeah. You, know? you can't imagine the Jam doing this song, can you? No. Well, it, it, if they had done it certainly wouldn't have sounded like this that's the thing you certainly can't imagine bruce foxton and rick buckler agreeing to this video <laughs> i would right? like Can to you? see it although it's i mean the video to the bitterest pill is funny funny enough you know where uh, aside yes. from paul weller's masterful yes, acting performance where he uh gets in a huff uh with his girlfriend and they're having an argument next to the tennis court <laughs> And with this, with this completely <laughs> blank, expressionless face, he bangs his fist down on the table like a sort of a yeah. a, a toy rabbit or something. Just bang, bang, and she gets up. <laughs> but the the other greatest bit is where he's walking down uh, the street, peering in through the window, and he sees his girlfriend having a romantic evening in with Bruce and Rick. <laughs> <laughs> Like you know, yeah. the suggestion being that you know there's a bit of uh, bit of spit roast action happening later. 
Um, <laughs> backstage at a From the Jam concert, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ultimately, the, the, the best things about Paul Weller, I would say, it all comes down to him being, you know, a worker. Not just an authentically working-class British songwriter, but a worker in the sense that he would really labour over these songs and spend a long time on mm. arrangements and so on. You know, it was the same pride and vanity that led him to spend so long in front of the mirror, right? But it was good. And just as that vanity occasionally sent him down some bad roads, like I'm thinking of the bleached white spiky feather cut mm. and silver sharkskin suit combo, you know. Yeah. Sometimes he would overdo it musically and try things that he couldn't pull off. Um and it means that there is always something a little bit airless about his songs, uh, with not much spontaneity. But it's also the reason he managed to do so good, so much good stuff because he was prepared to put in all that time and effort, you know, and make himself a proper songwriter and learn how to do those things. Um, yeah. And I think the point in the nineties where he dropped that and let it all hang out and just became Weller, uh, I think. That was the point after which he never did anything interesting again. Anyway, let me just end my tale of gay confusion at the age of 15 so, you know, I can get on with the rest of my life. So, anyway, I was pretty sure I wasn't gay, but everyone was saying I was. So I started thinking, well, fucking hell, I I might be. I don't know. But I had a mate called Boise Williams and his next door neighbours, who were called Cliff and Una, not the Cliff and Una, uh, they'd have really noisy sex every Friday night. So (laughs) the very night after this episode, me, him and my mate Ganjo camped out in his back garden. So we're there in the tent and we're waiting for the sex to start and it doesn't. And so while we're waiting, me and Boise end up having this massive argument about Wham and the Style Council because I was pissed off that Long Hot Summer Ant got to number one and, and that people were just thick as fuck and everybody was saying that they were gay That when I knew that Wham were gay because, you know, they wore hairspray. So me and him were just basically having this massive argument about who was the gayest out of the Style Council and Wham. And then Boise said, well, if you had a party and you played the Style Council in one room and Wham in the other room, which room would have the most fanny in it? He's got a point. Yeah. Well, exactly. Just completely fucked my train of thought up. But then at the end, when the argument was getting really intense, he just whipped back the sleeping bag to reveal all spunk up his chest. Uh, (laughs) He'd been wanking the entire time. (laughs) And, uh, I mean, the other thing was, was uh, when this happened, he, he started singing that song off the Maltesers advert for some reason. You know, the one that goes, chocolates, ooh, Maltesers, ah. And then m- my other mate, he started wanking as well. And I'm like, oh, fucking hell. I, I just wanted to leave, but I didn't want to step over a wanking lad. So, you know, I kind of like s- sat there and watched and thought, oh, fucking hell, you know what? I'm not gay at all because... Men don't owe the mouth right. They look fucking horrible. No, not interested. And, you know, they wipe themselves down with a creosote rag afterwards. And so, yeah, I thought, well, I'm not gay then. There we go. And I was absolutely fucking right about George Michael Boise, if you're listening. You owe me a fiver. (laughs) Right, can we stop talking about Style Council now, please? We stopped ten minutes ago, Al. (laughs) (laughs) 
So in conclusion for me, uh, I thought, oh my God, everyone's going to think I'm gay now, but this song is so good, I don't give a fuck. You know, it, it, it could have called the song, I'll Need Him as a Big Gay Lord, <laughs> and I'd have still loved it. <laughs> or or uh, Long Hot Knob, brackets, in Al Needham's arse. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. I think the only the <laughs> only disappointing thing is from here, if you wanted to alienate the jam fans, he should have done a heavy metal record after this, shouldn't he? Oh god. Christ. So the following week, Long Hot Summer jumped five places to number three where it stayed for two weeks, the highest chart placing the band ever reached. The follow-up a solid bond in your heart got to number 11 in November of this year. According to legend, after Polydor made disapproving noises about the gayness of the video for Long Hot Summer, the band sent the label a demo of their new video, which was a compilation of hardcore pornography, asking <laughs> if that was more to their liking. You see, he has got a sense of humour. <laughs> In 2014, Paul Weller's son announced in Attitude magazine that he was bisexual and that it took ages to come out to his dad due to his working class hero image. Why didn't he see this video? (laughs) Why didn't he just take his dad out? Say, come on, dad, let's go out uh, for a boat trip. the Style Council and you can hear them performing live on my show this Saturday. Performing with us in the Top of the Pop studio today, it's level 42. The sun goes down! On his own, plugs the Style Council's appearance on his Saturday show, which I still have on a tape somewhere in the spare room, and introduces to The Sun Goes Down, Living It Up by Level 42. Formed in London in 1980 by Mark King and Phil and Roland Gould, all from the Isle of Wight, and Mike Lindup and Wally Badaroo, who played synths on M's pop music, Level 42 got their name from the answer to life, the universe and everything in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. After almost immediately signing to an indie label and releasing their debut single Love Meeting Love, which got to number 61 in September of 1980, they were picked up by Polydor in 1981 and got to number 38 with Love Games in May of that year. After four singles on the bounce that just missed out on the top 40, they made the charts again with The Chinese Way, which got to number 24 in February of this year. This is the follow-up to Out of Sight, Out of Mind, which got to number 41 in April. It's the second single from their fourth LP, Standing in the Light. It was a new entry last week at number 38, and it's gone up five places this week to number 33. Now, the most striking thing about this from the off is uh, the lad at the front, in he's got yellow trousers on and a sweatshirt yeah. with Wembley foot tappers on the front. He's a menace. (laughs) 
Yeah, what a crap name for a black dance band. Yeah. It sounds like bloody line dancers. Yeah, it does. And he's, where's, where are they? Where are the rest of the Wembley foot tappers? What's gone off? Uh, Maybe there was an England friendly on that night or something and he just just couldn't get on the Metropolitan line. Mugged him off, he's there on his own. Yeah. Terrible. But anyway, level 42. We cut from the Star Council straight to the hands of uh, level 42's keyboardist Mike Lindup, don't mm. we? Um, before Skinner does yeah. his intro, which is an interesting uh, editorial. Yeah decision there and uh, Mike Lindup's face always used to upset me uh, <laughs> because he looks too beatific mm. like he's just heard the good news about Jesus um, and uh, and Mark King looked like a balding fish so um, aesthetically they're quite unpleasant um, these were not my people basically mm. white trousers and rolled up shirt sleeves um, I didn't like soul boys or at least I didn't like this kind of soul boy um, the kind of lads who um, stereotypically customise their cars with furry mm. dice and sun strips with their and their girlfriends names and who went to soul weekenders at Caster and stuff like that basically I didn't and we, we've talked about this before I didn't like people who were into contemporary soul instead of vintage soul which on one level makes me a bit of a Luddite wanker, but I maintain that I had a point when it when contemporary soul music meant level 42. Mm. Uh, but inevitably, um, I quite like them yeah. now, and this. I quite like yeah. this now. Um, there are some fucking stone-cold grooves on their records. Um, Love Games, that you mentioned. Seriously, right? Whatever you remember that sounding like, go and play it again now. Love Games is amazing. Play the five-minute version. Hot Water, as well, is a fucking mm. banger. Um, this song, The Sun Goes Down, Living It Up, is an interesting period relic, mm. I think, in that it exemplifies the way in which everything in 80s pop, even the most hedonistic and feel-good stuff, was living in the ever-present shadow of nuclear war. I know. Because there's that hilarious couplet... I saw a soldier standing in a bar, looked so tired he'd come so far. <laughs> he said, I need to love someone before they drop the atom bomb. Yes. You see, these days, right, these days, if you came back from war in that state, um, they treat you for PTSD. Um, maybe mm. Help for Heroes would chuck you a few quid. Um, but in those yeah. days, your therapy was to go to a shit nightclub and talk to Mark King. <laughs> but this is another song partly about not wanting to go to war by people who wouldn't be useful and wouldn't be asked, right? You know, it's like, I don't want to go to war. So, well, yeah, don't worry about it. It's not, you know, unless the draft gets really fucking yeah. desperate. Your Falklands have been and gone, mate. Yeah, and we, we, it never got so desperate that we called on Mark no. King. I mean, this is like the, no. the road to Clark Datchley, you know what I mean, musically yes. and spiritually. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I d Tell you what, though, you'd be fucking great at Morse code, Mark King would. <laughs> Smooth, steady hand. <laughs> yeah, I strong thumb. I never liked level forty-two, but the lazy and thoughtless thing to say about them is that they were bland. Um, <clears throat> but that's not really the right word. They're not actually that bland. Their music is actually quite individual in the sense that it's hard to think of anyone else who sounds exactly like this. But I think part of the reason nobody else sounds exactly like this is that it's not that appealing. Um, I mean, to me, this this record is too slick to have charm, but it's too sort of twitchy and graceless to be slinky. It's like a, 
uh, a useless object. And pop songs that are useless objects, it's fine, but they have to be interesting in order to justify their existence. And to me, that's one thing this is not. I don't dislike it. It's like my ears just stare at it blankly. Like the way my eyes would stare blankly at a pigeon in a grey V-neck jumper. It's unusual, but not thrilling. Um, mm. So I can't, I can't really get much out of it apart from a, apart from a chuckle at Mark King. Is there's, I'd never, never got on with this. This is much lauded bass playing. Just makes me long for a thumbscrew. Uh, <laughs> and his singing is. It, is a uniquely unenjoyable sound. Um, mm. He doesn't seem like a bad guy or a complete twat or anything. He just seems to do a lot of stuff musically that only someone cut off from the complex beauty of life could really enjoy. You know, and I know that other bassists, in other words, yeah, and I know that doesn't really mean anything as criticism. It's just sort of silly rhetoric, but. It's the only the only way I can express it. I can't locate any kind of spiritual link between this and anything worth caring about. Um, yeah, uh, that's the worst and the best thing I can say about it. Well, I love this song. Yeah. I have to say, I didn't at the time, but then um, in the nineties, my housemate was a huge uh, jazz funk fan and massively into Mark King. And I had a copy of this that I taped, of this episode, well, not this episode, but I think it was one a few weeks later when they came back on again. Uh, I had a copy of it on video and it got played loads simply because I liked Top of the Pops and he liked Level 42. And I, I guess it reminds me of that time. And, you know, and but, but I also like the song as well. And, and, it, and now it kind of reminds me of 1983. It just feels like a warm weather song. Yeah. One thing that really pisses me off about this particular performance, and it's something that we've not brought up on chart music yet on uh, episodes of this this era, how quiet is the fucking music being played in the studio when you can hear a balloon being popped over some some relentless fucking slap bass? Because <laughs> that happens quite a lot, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, I've heard it before on like heavy metal records that they've played on top of the pops. <laughs> It's insane. How big are these balloons? The other lyric I wanted to draw attention to, apart from the um, amusing atom bomb verse, is um, when Mark yeah. King sings, um, there's a girl at the back making eyes at me and her hair long and black is a sight to see. I'm pretty sure she's looking straight past him over <laughs> his shoulder at the hot barman making cocktails. Because the idea that somebody would be making eyes at Mark King. Um, even if he's a successful musician, is just, you know, just just beyond. But he's very yeah, he's very much a, a nice personality guy. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, ask his wife. I'm sure that's what she'd say. <laughs> but the, the most interesting thing to me yeah. about Level 42 is the fact that they're from the Isle of Wight, or most mm. of them are from the Isle of Wight, because I know they formed in London, but they they had been formed in their formative years. And the Isle of Wight strikes me as exactly the kind of place that bands like this come from. Yeah. Because if a bunch of like jazz heads or jazz funk heads from London, like born and raised, had formed a pop group, mm. it wouldn't have been like this. Yeah. It would have been cool, you know, yeah. either genuinely cool or self-consciously cool. Mm. Um, whereas the best and the worst things about this record 
reek of, you know, isolation mm. on a grassy rock. Yeah. Surrounded by sea forts. Um, I mean, in, mo- in more ways than one, what I'm saying is this record sounds like something that came out of cows. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. You could say that they, they were the most successful group of their ilk, but practically the only one that you could remember. The, the fact that you could actually name one of them. You're not going to get that from Windjammer or any of the other jazz... Even Freeze. Free Yeah, true. Yeah. I mean, there was Bill Watts' name out of Shack Attack. I knew him, but only because... I only yeah. knew his name well, because... Bill Watts' name. Yeah, yeah everyone remembers yes. his name. Yeah, I only knew, knew him... <laughs> Because of his collaboration with Gary Newman. Bill Sharp. Yeah. Gary Newman. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Christ, I didn't know the names of the two women in Shack Attack, and that's wrong. I, that's something that you, you should know as a pop fan, but you never did. I interviewed Dave Wakeling from The Beat recently, and um, yeah. they kind of formed on the Isle of Wight, even though mostly they're from Birmingham. Really? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Dave Wakeling and one other member were um, down there... Uh, doing a bit of cash-in-hand work uh, installing solar panels, very early primitive solar panels. Wow. And um, he told me that uh, at that time, we're talking late 70s, it was quite a kind of stoner scene down in the Isle of Wight. It's where mm. people, it's a lot of spliffheads down there, a lot of people who were on the kind of London new wave or punk scene would head down to the Isle of Wight and just sort of crash out for a few weeks and get their heads together and just sort of, you know... yeah almost sort of rehab while still getting high the whole time. Um, and and um, I think that kind of um, island setting with a lot of weed going around does lend itself to sometimes interesting and sometimes terrible um, musical mutations. And I just wonder if Level 42 were in any way part of that. Because they're the right era. Yeah, it's like, uh, it's like, it's like what Britain yeah. has got instead of Hawaii. <laughs> There's a great um, thing on YouTube, which is some reggae artist doing a song called Welcome to the Isle of Wight, which I think was for the no. Isle of Wight Tourist Board, which is just him, like uh, just this Rasta guy leaping around in front of, uh, you know, nice, pleasant island mm-hmm. scenes. <laughs> Singing Welcome to the Isle of Wight. It's, I'll uh, check that. Yeah. You ever been to the Isle of Wight? Yeah, I have a few times. It's like yeah. Toy Town, isn't yeah. it? It's lovely. I went there on It's holiday. a place where they still openly yeah. sell gollywog fridge magnets. Yeah. But then that's probably quite a lot of Britain right now. Yeah, but compared to the Isle of Man, yeah. I imagine it's quite quite progressive. God, you've been there as yeah. well? No, but I've heard terrible stories. Yeah. I've been arrested on the Isle of Man. Have you? <laughs> yeah, for, for, go, for going for a piss on an aeroplane. What? <laughs> there was like a music journalist junket to the Isle of Man to watch um, the band Manson, you see what they oh. did there, um, play a gig uh, in a hotel. And uh, um, there was lots of free booze at Heathrow beforehand. We all got well pissed up. And the flight's only, I don't know, maybe half an hour long. Um, but we couldn't come into land straight away. We had to keep circling and circling to get a runway mm. at the Isle of Man. And I really needed a piss because I'd drunk too much. And um, I was looking out the window and I could see the waves crash on the rocks and that was making it worse. It was just making me absolutely have to have a piss. So even though the fasten seatbelt sign was on and we were told to stay in our seats, I just had to get up and go. And I got up and like sort of ran down the uh, the aisle and locked myself in the toilet. Mm-hmm. 
uh, and and uh, the the crew were really freaking out. And I was going, look, I'm sorry, but this is better than the alternative here. And they said, well, we're coming into land now. And I said, oh, don't worry, I'll just sit down here. <laughs> and uh, so I, I sat tight. We landed, and I came out of the um, cubicle, got off the plane. And when I got off the plane, there were two armed police Fuck. standing there yeah. um, to have a, to take me side and have a very stern word with me. And um, I assured them that I was embarrassed enough already. Yeah. Uh, and don't worry, I wasn't going to willingly do this again. They didn't have to tell me. Uh, but then th- the following day, when we were all leaving the Isle of Man, um, I got back through the airport, and there's the fucking um, mayor of Douglas who's there to represent the entire island and to take me to one side and give me another stern talking what? to. I was like, I was like, mate, <laughs> seriously, there's no need. Taylor, were you on that? You weren't on that trip, were you? No, I wasn't. But this uh, is uh, this sounds like the most interesting thing that happened <laughs> on the Isle of Man. For about ten years, <laughs> they got the mayor out. It's like, oh, it's, it was a massive deal to them, obviously. Yeah, this is before nine eleven. You know, what yeah. I mean? but still, it was uh, terrifying to them that somebody might need a yeah, place com- place a comparable coming. comparable scale. I, yeah. I I always imagine that they used those three legged things like Rover in the Prisoner. <laughs> like if you misbehave on the Isle of Man, there's like some of those come rolling out of the out of the trees. <laughs> Kick you back in line. Yeah, well, the, the way they treated me, they may as well have had those three-legged things black in a white circle and a red background, <laughs> yes. you know what I mean? Yeah, you just imagine a load of those, like, kicking the life. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. But you while a load of motorbikes go zooming past. It's a horrible place. Horrible yeah. place. And where's the money yeah. for that coming from? It's not tax dollars, is it? No. I went to the Isle of Man for, uh, for the TT with Mayfair. Uh, about 20 years ago and uh i'd heard all the stuff about you know people were saying oh, you're not going to take any weed in or anything like that and i'm gonna like yeah of course i am i don't give a fuck I'll, you know I-, I can hide it and everything and my way of hiding it was putting a lump of hash in a camera case and putting it in the side pocket 
of me hold all. Oh. And so uh, it's it's stashed away and everything on the catamaran. And I thought, oh, I'll get the local, I'll get the local newspaper, see what's going on and everything. And every fucking article was uh, the police finding weed somehow and chucking people in jail for three weeks. I mean, there was one time they went into someone's tent and dug up the the, the ground and found a jar full of grass, like buried down two feet, and they found it. And so I started getting massively paranoid. And we get there, and there's fucking coppers and dogs everywhere, and the dogs are sniffing the bags and all this kind of stuff. And I'm just out going into an absolute fucking panic. And my bag's not come. I'm waiting 10 minutes. Everyone else has got the bags, and my bag's not come. And I'm saying to my mate, what do I do, what do I do, what do I do? And he says, oh, isn't that your bag there? And there was one bag on the carousel. And I watched it go round about 20 times and so panicked, not realising it was my own fucking bag. <laughs> what a dickhead I am. Yeah, that would be a hard prison to escape from as well. You'd be like the Birdman yeah. of Alcatraz. It's yeah. like it's like Singapore, but with mm. the weather of Stranra. Uh. Yes. <laughs> but anyway, level, level 42 aren't from there. No. <laughs> <laughs> So the following week, the sun goes down, leapt 12 places to number 21 and would eventually get to number 10 for two weeks in September. The follow-up, Micro Kid, got to number 37 in October of this year and they go on to score five more top 10 hits from 1985 to 1987. That is level 42, and they are living it up. The sun goes down. Now we turn to Spandau Ballet. They're on video, and they are gold. Thank you for coming home. Sorry that the chairs are all warm. I left them here, I could have sworn. Vance, surrounded by all the women, introduces another video, Gold by Spandau Ballet. We've already covered Spandau Ballet in Chart Music 24, and this is the follow-up to True, which got to number one for four weeks in May of this year. Because they're now officially in the top rank of popperdom, this single, which is the fourth release from their third LP, True, is accompanied on top of the pops by the video, which was shot in Carmona in Spain and features an earliest sighting of the actress Sadie Frost doing a bit of a gold finger. It's a new entry this week at number 12. By the way, the most disappointing thing about Tommy Vance's introduction here is the... <laughs> He hasn't prepared for the sentence, so he says it is a Spandau Ballet and they are gold in a sort of drawn out, uncertain way. And I was thinking this is when you absolutely would want Michael Jaston because this is an introduction that is just made for him. Yes. Could almost literally have been scripted for him. From half-spoken shadows emerges a canvas a kiss of light breaks to reveal a moment when all mirrors are redundant. <laughs> Listen to the portrait of the dance of perfection, the Spandau Ballet. 
I just had to get that in there. That, um, for listeners who don't know, is uh, the spoken word introduction from the journalist Robert Elms uh, from Spandau's gig at the Scala in 1980, uh, as immortalised in a documentary made by Janet Street Porter. And I just thought, we really need to have that to lead us into it nicely. And they've changed a bit since then, haven't they? They certainly have, yeah. The neuromantic days are well and truly gone. This is their big, huge pop star phase, isn't it? Yes. So the video is directed by Brian Duffy, who's the photographer who did the sleeve of Aladdin Sane and Mm. who passed away recently, actually. Um, And Gary Kemp is a massive Bowie fan, so that would have been a factor in getting him in. Um, And Duffy's the man responsible for all that mysterious symbolism in the video with the missing jigsaw piece and all that. Um, I've got to declare a bit of an interest here, actually, um, because there's the old thing, you know, do you prefer... Duran Duran or Spandau um I actually do prefer Duran but I've got to be diplomatic here uh I used to be a diplomat but now I'm down the laundromat oh very good um, because yeah um I've got to declare an interest because I know Steve Norman the sax player uh-huh. uh he lives in Brighton and we've been drinking together oh. um, he's a lovely fella um I know Gary Kemp as well who's a brilliant bloke very erudite knowledgeable about music um, I've interviewed his brother Martin on stage in a theatre, one of those an evening with things. And I know John Keeble's father-in-law, who is, get this, Yoffy from Finger Bobs. No! 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 Yes, he is. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Um, A.K.A. Rick Jones, who was um, a musician himself in a 70s country rock folky band called Meal Ticket. <laughs> yeah. Um, who... They are a bit of a cult following. They were on Whistle Test. I knew that you knew Yoffy from Finger Bobs. I didn't realise there was a connection between him and John Keeble. Um, so because of my um, uh, Spandau uh, fraternising, um, I've got some inside info on this uh, on this video. Um, so Ooh. the indoor scenes were not actually filmed in Spain. Um, they're filmed at Leighton no. House in Holland Park, West London, which is... Uh, one of the UK's finest examples of Moorish-style architecture. Um, it's also been used in the video mm. for Golden Brown by The Stranglers, and it's in Terry Gilliam's Brazil, uh. which is one of my all-time favourite films. Um, so uh, this all came from me having a chat with Steve Norman the other mm. week, um, because I knew we were doing this. And and that location um, was chosen because it could blend seamlessly with the outdoor footage of Tony Hadley um, running around Andalusia. And, uh, in fact, only Hadley got the away day trip out of it. Um, He went over to Spain with Brian Duffy. Really? And I have it on good authority that Hadley pissed off Brian Duffy, who didn't want to work with him ever after this. Get away. (laughs) I know. Um, So uh, when you see the Kemps strumming guitars and uh, Steve Norman stepping out with his sax, they're actually in... W14, not in southern Spain. Um, but, of course, Gary Kemp did get a wife out of it because, as you mentioned, the model playing the gold plate yes. is Sadie Frost, who would just have turned 18 at the time, um, and this is where they met, um, and who I mainly remember for her role as Lucy Westenra in Bram Stoker's Dracula, in which she's insanely hot. Um, the gold video was the first time they met. Um, is that the one where she gets uh, humped by a wolf? Yes, that is the one. You know exactly what I'm talking yeah. about. Bummer wolf. Bummer wolf. Yes, it is absolutely yeah. bummer wolf. So um, as a record, I, I think there's something simultaneously horrific and magnificent about gold. Um, it's kind of the Bond mm. theme that never was, isn't it? Um 
Yeah. It was the fourth single off the album and a surprisingly big hit for a fourth single. Um, the mm. thing about it is, we all love taking the piss out of Foghorn Hadley. And and he yeah. is a Wally, there's no other word. And it's a very period accurate word. Um, but this record works not despite Hadley, but because of him, Foghorn in a way. Mm. Everyone loves having a go at, you know, doing an impression, particularly when drunk, of that uh, that performance and uh, and some some yeah. credit has to be given to the production duo Swain and Jolly who we're not allowed to talk about anymore because Stephen Jolly turned out to be a wrong cock um, but they did most of Banana Rama's early stuff they did all of Imagination's mm. early stuff so it's a bit of a shame if they've been completely written out of pop history I reckon there we go the thing I like about this video is that although I guess Tony Hadley is meant to be some sort of suave Indiana Jones type. Um, yes. For me, this video has Hadley as entitled enforcer of the British Empire. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it looks like he's been caught between shooting elephants and uh, deflowering a peasant girl for a bag of gold coins slipped to her father, which later turned out to, to have been full of pebbles. Um, and the thing is, it suits him because he has that revolting face and that air of sort of flared, nostriled cuntishness. So it really works for the video. It's like watching the early years of a, a Monday Club stalwart, you know what I mean? <laughs> like the salad days of the 1922 committee, Joint Executive Secretary, <laughs> member for Harrow East. Um, but... Even though it is more London flash than genuine class, and it sort of makes you giggle where you're meant to be gasping, this video is great, and it looks lovely, and there really is something completely wonderful about these archetypal pretentious 80s music videos where nothing means anything but is presented as if it means everything because they are a mini-genre, mm in themselves and they have a very distinctive aesthetic which no one's ever really been able to parody accurately because it's a bit too rich you know but this example is as perfect as you could ever find and it so it lacks a bit of the punch and the wit and the wink to the viewer that you get with Duran Duran videos but mm. there's as much fun to be had here if you like absurd low culture and you're not ashamed by it being from the 1980s, which I'm not. Uh, and I think you'd have to be one hell of a purist to dislike this record. Do you know what I mean? Because, yeah. I mean, aesthetically, it's sort of dirty. Not in a sexual way or in terms of the sound, but just that it feels very impure and confected in a way that smooth commercial pop ballads usually don't, right? It's a little bit forced and a little bit posy. But I can't imagine being the kind of person to whom that would seem like a wholly bad thing or for whom that would ruin an obviously good song, you know, whose only mm. mistake is to sound funny where it means to sound heroic, right? But who cares, right? Who could possibly care about that? Uh, bores and purists, right? And you might want to take the Hadley fist and ram it up the Hadley arse, but <laughs> as Simon says, he, he's fine on this record because it's made for that sort of bellowing, 
mock heroic delivery. Yes. Uh, there is no reason to not enjoy this, and everything's much easier if you do. And mm. something else, whatever anyone says about the music of Gary Kemp, like Paul Weller, like I was saying about Paul Weller earlier, he really worked on his songs, and you can tell, right? All the hallmarks of time and effort are there on the best band of ballet records, right? You've got uh, unusual bridge sections and sort of mini experiments with rhythm and syncopation. And there's always loads of passing chords and little flourishes. Mm. All the stuff which doesn't happen when songs are written quickly and mm, yeah. without much effort. I think craftsmanlike is the word, right? Mm. Now, I don't know if that came from the same thing of Weller, of being a lad of relatively humble origins into a subculture which put a lot of stock into pride and detail and work you know but i think it makes it makes the best bandar ballet songs stand up today i think and you know as they stood up all through those years where uh the trappings of spandau ballet were considered so ludicrous that nobody listened to them the point is that when you mm do listen to the best of their songs. Um, they're really good. Yeah, I think Taylor makes a valid point there um, about their, their backgrounds as much as anything else because um, mm. the Kemp brothers were working class kids, but they were also stage school kids. They both went to Anna Schur. Mm. Um, and I think that kind of inculcated them with a mentality that the good things in life are there for them, for the taking, and that they shouldn't have to you know, be humble, humble um, cockney urchins, and that you know, and that 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 kind of um, translates into the music as well. That um, their music could be lavish and complex, and they should have no shame about that. They should just go for it, and they did. Mm. Yeah. Speaking of which, I've got a, a DVD somewhere with an episode of um, what is it? I think it might be the kids' show. You must be joking. Or something like that, some seventies kid show, and mm. it's got Gary Kemp and Phil Daniels uh, doing the acoustic yeah. music. Oh numbers. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it's a song by America or one of those groups um, about drugs, but right. you know they didn't let on. And it's them <gasps> and the drummer from Flintlock playing bongos. Uh, I think it's Gary Kemp's first TV appearance. Very good. Gary Kemp's actually uh, visible in that. Um, David Bowie special that was filmed in about 1973 or 74 at the Marquee. Um, I think it's the one where Bowie does um, time in a really theatrical way. Um, maybe I'm getting my uh, Bowie mixed up here, but to be immortalised mm. like that down the front, he was only 14 or something. But yeah, no, I've got I've got a huge amount of respect for for, for Gary Kemp. Um, and yeah, I mean, I probably prefer the earlier Spandau stuff, but this is a very very good record. I was in a coffee shop in Brick Lane the other week, which is not often the case because I sort of hate that whole pseudo-culture. But I was returning a Hermes parcel, and that's the nearest shop that does it. So I stopped to have a coffee nearby, uh, and this song started playing in there. Not your frying pan, was it, you were bragging on about in the previous episode? <laughs> no, oh, it God, wasn't. That, I'm relieved. 
And I looked around because I thought, okay, you know, this shows how out of time and old I am, right? I looked around because I thought, okay, it's Brick Lane. It's sort of a bit, you know, these kind of uh, hipster kids. And it's like, does somebody think this is funny or ironic? No, nobody thought it was funny or no. ironic. We're, we're well past that point mm. where there's any sort of irony at play. Because these people don't remember Spandau Ballet, no. right? Let alone why you're mm. meant to hate them. This has just become a standard, mm. right? Whereas highly strung or through the barricades. Fight for not, ourselves. Right? It's just simple natural selection. Right, exactly. They're not great records. This is a great record. Therefore, people like it. People hear it and they think, oh, that's good. And it's as simple as that. Another thing I just remembered that I really enjoyed about this record at the time was that Smash Hits used to transcribe it as your indestructible with loads of vowels in it. It was amazing. <laughs> and it has less than half the fat of margarine. <laughs> so the following week, gold soared 10 places to number two, its highest position, held off the top spot for two weeks by this week's number one. The follow-up, only When You Leave got to number three in June of 1984, by which time Gold was getting more airplay due to it being on heavy rotation during the BBC's coverage of the Los Angeles Olympics. their hit at the moment. Here's a record now that first made the charts in 62 for Mel Torbe. It's Susie and Budgie, the creatures, right now! Right now, let me take you by the hand. Right now, put your lips at my command. Right now, Fly me off to lover's land. Skinner, surrounded once more by the kids, introduces right now by the creatures. Formed in London in 1981 during recording sessions for Susie and the Banshees' fourth LP, Juju, the creatures comprised of Susie Sue and Banshees drummer Peter Clark, otherwise known as Budget. Their first release, the Wild Things EP featuring Mad-Eyed Screamer, got to number 24 in October of 1981, but the duo will put on hold for a year while the Banshees worked on the LP A Kiss in the Dream House in 1982. In 1983, Sue and Budget pissed off to Hawaii to record the LP Feast, and their first single from it, Miss the Girl, got to number 21 in May of this year. This is the follow-up, a cover of the Bossa Nova tune which was written by Herbie Mann in 1962 and then covered with lyrics by Mel Torme the same year and features a brass section led by Gary Barnacle who played with The Clash, The Ruts, M, Simple Minds, The Stray Cats and Level 42. And it's up three places this week to number 17. Simon, you weren't goffed up yet, were you? No, I wasn't. Um... Were you dipping a toe though into the... Into the dark pool? Not really. Um, I quite liked um, some of Susie's singles by this point. Things like mm. Happy House and Spellbound. Um, yeah. Uh, 
but I wasn't somebody who had any of the albums at that point. Um, I sort of felt like it was for older kids. It wasn't for me. Maybe I'd grow mm. into it one day. It was older sister music. You know, you get older brother music. Yes. Well, Susan the Banshees, um, literally one of my mate's older sister was bang into them and had their albums knocking around the house. So sometimes we'd uh, nick her records and have a listen. But um, mm. uh, no, I, I would not say I was I was a fan. I was kind of I kind of admired them from a distance. I think it'd be true mm. to say at that point. And I like the creatures for being part of that, um, that 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 whole wave of very percussive music that came out of the post punk scenes. So things like Bow Wow Wow and yeah. Adam and the Ants and so on. Yes, um, it, there was it's all that kind of tribal drumming going on. But this is something different, isn't it? Tight fit. Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> tight fit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, Budgie and Susie were a couple um, at this point. Yeah. Um, they often fell out with Steve Severin, um, you know, mm. the other main player in the Banshees, and um, guitarists kept dying or leaving. So um, I, I suppose it was it was a, it was a natural thing for she and him to go off and make records without without the, the rest of them. I never saw this coming. Having heard their other stuff, I never saw them doing an old kind of bossa nova jazz standard like mm. this. It sort of hit me out of nowhere, and then. Um, Tommy Vance refers to that. He's, he's, he says uh, at the end, an astonishing record for them to record. And I, I agree with him. Um, mm. But in a way, I suppose it's part of that shift from um, uh, British bands, white British bands, mining soul music, soul mining, to quote yeah. the The album, um, and shifting towards jazz. Um, you have things mm. like Kim Wilde um, and... Um, Love Blonde. Yeah. Love Blonde. And, and, uh, and of course... Carmel basing a whole career on that, and I I yeah. I, I really like uh, the first Carmel album actually. So um, mm. basically, maybe soul was depleted; it had been all been stripped out, and and the only you know so, so jazz was was the next kind of seam to to be digging into. Um, mm. And yeah, I, I I think it's a really cool record. Uh, it, it's got that real kind of finger clicking kind of snap to it, um, mm. but and and she looks great. She's got this. Cool old microphone, and oh, this, it's brilliant! Yeah, isn't it? yeah, yeah, and and the black and gold jumpsuit. I think she looks awesome, but it's kind of ruined by the dancers. These awful, yeah. awful dancers in film noir costumes that somebody in yeah. their wisdom at the BBC has decided to flank Susie with when she really doesn't need it. Yeah, they look like they've they've been asked to dance to We Are Detective by the Thompson Twins. <laughs> got the exactly. got the cue sheets yeah. mixed up. And it's, there's no yeah. need for it. And I bet Susie was well pissed off about that. Yeah, yeah. You're right, Simon. At this time, kind of like jazz was was starting to become a thing on the pop charts. Um, yeah, well, in, in, in this chart, there's Roman Holiday. Yes. Uh, in, the, in, in, in the chart rundown, who are doing a similar I thing. I agree with you. I think she pulls this, up, this off really well. Without doing much to change her voice. Susie always sings this kind of semitone flat. That's her yeah. thing. And um, it just lends a certain edge to everything she does. Yeah. So that even when she's singing really upbeat sort of major key song, it's got that slight air of menace to it. And I think it works yeah. really well on this. Yeah, definitely. In you come, Taylor. I, I, I can't bear Susie and the Banshees. <laughs> I, I can't stand them. I just don't like them. I think they're tedious and sludgy. And I find her completely charmless. And, I mean, I accept that... Um, what's his name? John McGeoch was a genuinely inventive guitarist. Mm. Uh, but so is The Edge, and I can't <laughs> listen to you 2 either. I mean, to me, 
Susie and the Banshees is just the same as other 80s rubbish like Echo and the Bunnymen. It's just gloopy pomp with stupid lyrics and no wit. Uh, although it's possibly partly that I'm just a couple of years too young for mm. that generation. I mean, I quite like some records by The Cure who were, you know, artistically almost the same thing, just a year or two on mm. in time. Although The Cure records are like a not the ones that sound like Susie and the Banshees. Uh, but as as early 80s reworkings of old songs go, to me this is only marginally better than Dave Stewart and Barbara Gaskin. <laughs> you know, it's the... Fucking hell. Yeah, I'm keeping out of this. <laughs> the music is objectively worse than the original because it's only any different in the sense of being thinner and less powerful. Mm. And she doesn't have the authority as a singer to sell uh, a singer's song because she's got that sort of thin and flat voice. And to me, it's not even good at sounding cold and distant because it's too weak and there's too much wobble uh, and audible effort. So she sounds too much like a real person singing or trying to sing. Mm. When you compare her with like the, the real... Ice ladies like Nico or you know Christina or people like this, mm. um, and the Mel Torme version is only a dinky little ditty. But although it's very tame, it still sounds hot, mm. which this doesn't. Um, so I don't know. I mean, this is un- an unfair comparison because it's not as bad as this. But in some ways, it reminds me of when those dull AOR bands like Travis and keen there was a trend for them to do versions of popular songs by like britney spears Mm. and so forth uh and that was morally far worse because you always got the sense with that that it was some sort of joke like they genuinely thought that their music was better and they were somehow redeeming the song you know which you absolutely don't get here Mm. but it's the same thing has happened which is that most of the detail from the original is stripped away and it turns into a plod, you know. And it's almost like they realise, well, let's strip it down. And they thought, well, we, there's nothing there. So they had to put all the brass back in and not do it cold and bare. Mm. So you just end up with a version of right now that hasn't got any bass on it and has no groove. Mm. And, yeah, it's like it's like a jam donut with no jam in it. It's like, what's the point, you know? doesn't doesn't appeal. Simon, your response... Well, it's all opinions, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) So the following week, right now, nudged up three places to number 14, its highest position. A month later, Susie and the Banshees put out Dear Prudence, which went all the way to number three, and the creatures were put on hold until 1989 and the LP Boomerang. They never troubled the top 40 again, however, and they split up in 2005. An astonishing record to re-record, but they did, and it is a hit. They are the creatures, the track is called Right Now. And right now, on the top of the pop studio, will you welcome this young band from Liverpool with their first ever record. They're called the Lotus Eaters. This is the first picture of you. Thank you. 
Vance, suitably impressed by the creatures, segues nicely into the first picture of you by the Lotus Eaters. Formed in Liverpool in 1982 from the ashes of the Wild Swans and the Jass Babies, the Lotus Eaters were invited to record a Peel session in October of that year, which featured the first picture of you. On the back of that, they were immediately signed to Arista Records, and after supporting Big Country's early 83 tour, this is their debut release, and it's up this week from number 23 to number 21. Well, chaps, I think I'm detecting a, a turn of the page in, uh, in music here, because this is possibly the first song that could have been played on the John Peel show and Pebble Mill at one. <laughs> Couldn't it? It probably was. I hadn't heard this record for years uh, mm. before watching this. And over several watches of this episode, I went from finding it a bit wet to finding it a bit wet but liking it to mm. finding it a bit wet but really liking it. So mm. I went and listened to a load of their other stuff uh, and all of that makes this sound like Pig Destroyer. So they, they, they were not ashamed of being a wimpy-sounding band. You can say mm. that for them. Um, yeah. Although they couldn't really do much else when you look at them. I mean, the singer looks like John Stone's bad at football little brother. Um, and the, yes. There's the, the way he sings, it's that suspiciously clear enunciation, right? When he sings the chorus line on this, he says, the fast picture of you. Right. Mm. Now, if you're from Liverpool, um, when you say yeah. the word first, your yeah. mouth is in a smiling shape, right? It's drawn yes. wide and thin. Um, <laughs> yeah. This is the exact opposite. His mouth is like an O, like an opera singer. The first picture. I don't know if he's from, you know, Hoylake or some posh bit over the water or something, but... It's very, very noticeable, especially when he's standing next to that guitarist who just looks too scouse to take anything seriously and is <laughs> on the verge of laughing throughout the whole performance. But it's all right, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the stance is the singer deplores. He, he is standing there kind of like with his arms folded and the hands under the armpits, <laughs> like sulky kid who doesn't want to play football because it's pissing it down, <laughs> yeah. usually in goal. Yeah, yeah, just he, he would volunteer to be in goal for the side that didn't have to mm. do much defending, so he could just stand there yes. and think about trees or something. <laughs> As a kid, I always thought they were called the locust eaters. <laughs> oh, and I don't know if that's better or worse as a name. Um, the lotus eaters are prime exponents of a genre that I invented, um, which oh. is called. White pyjama music. Now, yes, yes I, I need to explain white pyjama music. It's something that I've banged on about on social media quite a lot, but I really need to write it up into a proper think piece at some point. But basically, it's a term that I, I coined to um, denote bands like the Lotus Eaters, but also H2O, Fiction Factory, China Crisis and Wang Chung. And they're all bands mm. who made that kind of very wet, wimpy, floaty uh, new pop 
and uh, more often than not would appear on TV wearing kind of shapeless white baggy clothing um ricky gervais's uh failed band shona dancing were another one of these um mm. and yeah I, I i think um it's it's one of the one of those kind of uh retrospective um genres that that you you, you can apply now like like freak beat nobody in the 60s talked about freak beat but it's something that no. kind of you know um cool record collectors decided to call a bunch of stuff years later i think we can talk about white pajama music and, and lotus eaters are definitely bang in the middle of that this uh this mm. performance is actually possibly chronologically the the peak of of white pajama um the first sighting of it i think was china crisis um on top of the pops, uh, their first appearance is kind of the white pajama anarchy in the UK moment. Um, yes, <laughs> which is a ridiculous comparison <laughs> when you think what this stuff sounds like. Um, and China Crisis are Scousers, of course. And I, I mm. wonder why so much of this stuff um, came from Liverpool, because um, this is also not a million miles from the Pale Fountains, who are another Scouse band. Um, yeah. Another way of describing it would be Janice Long music, and Janice Long. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah. Janice, because uh, she, she she was also big on sort of pushing bands like It's Immaterial and anyone who came from Merseyside, she had as much civic pride about Merseyside as Anthony Wilson did about Manchester and she was pushing yeah. a lot of this stuff. Um, they, uh, their kind of almost almost aggressive lack of aggression, their their um, kind of strident wimpiness is even... Uh, um, kind of emphasised by the way they wear their instruments. They wear their guitars very high on their bodies, don't they? Mm. And they were, of course, a total one-hit wonder. Can anyone even name another song by them? Um, I've got a friend. Uh, in fact, he's he's married to my cousin, John Poole. Random John Poole, he calls himself bassist. He's been in many bands, uh, including uh, the Wild Hearts and um, the Cardiacs and Dr. Hook at the moment. But for, for, Good yeah, Lord. But for a little while, he was in the Lotus Eaters, and I'm talking about three or four years ago. Fuck. And I thought, what must those gigs have been like? Because uh, when, <laughs> when you see, um, for example, um, Men Without Hats playing a comeback gig, yeah. that's going to be one long slog till the encore of safety dance, isn't it? Yes. So, so it's going to be like, like, you know, you can imagine probably what they've got to do is they'll they'll go on and play safety dance straight away and then say, okay, yeah. um, like stick around because we'll play that song again later. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. I'd have to go on a set list, but I would imagine it's a similar deal for um, the Lotus Eaters. Well, it's a bit like us, isn't it? I mean, people are sitting there waiting for the bummer dog to be mentioned. <laughs> We don't disappoint. I was thinking about this white pajama stuff, right? It does make sense. They're like they're almost like a bridge, but uh, into that kind of music from stuff like Orange Juice. Do you know yeah. what I mean? It's like they yeah, they're a bit more have, jangly and indie than yeah, yeah. Yeah, they couldn't have been doing this at this point yeah, it's, without. It's more quash, isn't it, than Orange yes, Juice? Yeah, quash. They are they are quash. Um, but yeah, they're definitely leading into that sort of China crisis type music. No, that's that's a, a good way of putting it. Because I was thinking while I was watching this, well, look, it's this is a pretty record and it sounds rich and a little bit wrong, sort of like the best French pop of the eighties is what it reminds me of. And it was no surprise mm. that this record was a massive hit in France. I discovered. Um, yeah, but they're one of those bands where I just think, what was their game? You know, what did they think they were doing? Mm. What musical tradition did they think they were a part of? Um, and who precisely was meant to like them, you know? Now, that's mm. the thing I like best about them, in a way, 
but I still wonder. Yeah. I mean, you can hear Liverpool in there, definitely, and they make more sense in that context because there's a sort of a small bigness about the sound, or a big smallness, if you prefer, which is mm. absolutely associated with 80s Liverpool music. But they don't quite fit in there either. Um, yeah. They're a nice riddle in that respect, but nothing else really came out of this hole. So this must have been the beautiful fluke that it really sounds like. And also it's the opposite of what I was saying before about Paul Weller and Gary Kemp, right? This song sounds like it fell off them while they were doing something else. It's completely effortless, totally effortless and pure, Uh, which is great too. But if you depend on divine inspiration, you don't get a career because that big flash only happens once, or in in this case, a little flash, but it only happens once, Mm. only once. It's definitely one of those songs that you like, but you don't want anyone else to know that you like. Yeah, maybe. You know, if you if you if you caught yourself humming it um, in front of your mates while you're playing football, then you'd, you'd shut yourself up very quickly. <laughs> well, it's weird because I like loads of soft lad music. You know, loads of it, um, mm. and always did really. Um, and this sounds a bit like a Sarah Records band lost in an expensive studio, right? Which is not a terrible mm. thing, especially with that nice '80s no. South of France dreaminess to it. You know, it's there's just mm. something about it. You know, it's not. It doesn't sound contrived and simpering like the worst of that music does. You know, um, it's just a nice sort mm. of limpid pop song with a lush production on it and they had the decency to not hang around too long so i like it i just don't trust them i don't know why it might just be that they look a little bit too pleased with the world and themselves for my liking i don't know it's a strong memory from 1983 for me but i think that's because i've mistakenly bundled it up with uh one summer the oh, yeah. the willie russell tv series that was on channel four about billy and Ike, who fuck off from Liverpool to Wales to avoid the Swan Jacks. And, and of course, because it's Liverpool and it's the 80s, it all goes wrong in the end. <laughs> yeah. But this is a, another summer record, right? Like this and the Style Council, both yeah. records clearly designed yeah. as summer records and just lucked in because it was yeah. the hottest summer since, you know. Um, yeah. And it's, it's a really... really Really a stroke of luck, you know. It's like, you know when Rihanna put out Umbrella in late spring yeah. of 20, uh, 2007? Yeah. And people are like, people must have been like, why are you putting out a record called Umbrella at the point where it starts getting really hot? You know, this is a really bad idea. Um, and of course, it turned out to be the wettest summer in this country, at least, that anyone could remember. And that record was never off the fucking radio. So turned out to be a masterstroke. So, yeah, same thing. You put out long, hot summer. <laughs> You're lucky. It's a long, hot summer. So, the following week, the first picture of you jumped six places to number 15, where it stayed for two weeks, its highest position. The follow-up, You Don't Need Someone New, only got to number 53 in October of this year, and they never troubled the top 40 again and split up in 1985. The first Yeah. 
You know, that record never seems to be off Radio 1, I'm happy to say. They are, of course, the Lotus Eaters at number 21, the first picture of you. Let's have a look at the charts now as we count down from 30 right up to 21. At number 30, we have The Walk by The Cure. At 29, it's over, The Funk Master. A chart entry at number 28, give it some emotion by Tracy. Baby Jane and Rod Stewart, number 27. Another chart entry, wait until tonight, my love, by Galaxy 26. Down to 25, Flashdance Eileen Cara. At number 24, Love Blonde, Kim Wilde. Up to 23, Freak by Bruce Foxton. Do It Again and Billie Jean by Clubhouse, down to 22. At number 21, the first picture of you by the Lotus Eaters. But here we have in the top of the pop studio tonight, the number 10 record by Depeche Mode, Everything Counts. Vance mentions that the first picture of you is being rinsed on Radio 1 at the moment before finally piling into the arse end of the top 30. Oh, any tunes on there you don't remember? Um, Wait Until Tonight My Love by Galaxy. No fucking idea. No. Um, I noticed uh, Bruce Foxton with his solo record Freak in the the lower reaches there. Bless him. What a tragedy (laughs) he couldn't have been on this week. Yeah. Was he ever on top of the pops? As a yes, he was. Artist? Yeah, I'm sure he was. Okay. Yeah, one day he and he and we shall meet. Mm-hmm. And um, there's that club, just one place above him, Clubhouse. Uh, do it again, Billy Jean. One of the first mm. mashups to mm. get in the charts, I suppose. Yeah. A, a Steely Dan, Michael Jackson mashup. Yeah. Although it strictly wasn't a mashup; it was like a re-recording, wasn't it? Yes. Obviously, I know it now, but at the time, I managed to miss that record. You know, uh, Gary Bird. Um, the Crown, yeah, oh, yeah, that's yeah. Good tune, yeah. Um, and that's a that's a weird record to have missed mm. when you're ele- eleven. Yeah, yeah, I haven't I heard that, love that about tune. ten years ago. Yeah, it's yeah. good. Finally, Vance introduces everything counts by Depeche fucking mode again. No, he doesn't. He doesn't. He introduces everything counts by Depeche mode. Oh yeah, sorry, Depeche fucking mode again. Yeah, I'll tell you what though. One thing I can say, it's an unusually attractive audience this week, mm. right? Um, in this bit, there's a girl on the left who could have been going out with Brian Ferry if she Ooh. hadn't been wearing a purple tie-dye vest and <laughs> white safari shorts over a pair of tights. Mm. Um, and there's another girl behind Skinner and Vance who isn't exactly conventionally beautiful, but has one of those haughty, hooded-eyed, rather superior smiles, which mm. I can never resist. Well, not that resistance is really an issue these days. For me, <laughs> you know. but, and then elsewhere, there's that girl in the gay bondage cap who mm. keeps popping up. I like Always her a lot. looking great. Yeah, I do too. Always <laughs> with that same unbroken gaze into the camera lens right that's yeah. an unbroken unblinking gaze and i don't know if it's affectation or uh, early eight is alienation or if it's just old-fashioned stupidity <laughs> you can't tell but it looks fantastic yeah We've already discussed Depeche Mode over and over and over again, so we'll just say that this is the preview single from their third LP, Construction Time Again, which comes out a week tomorrow. 
It's the follow-up to Get the Balance Right, which got to number 13 in March of this year. And it's up this week from number 16 to number 10. Fucking hell, again. Yeah. And the frustrating thing is, when it's always Depeche Mode clanking away... uh, I mean, I quite like most of their singles from this period, but they're not so radically different from each other that it feels like starting afresh every time one yeah. comes up, you know, yeah. like it would with, you know, Prince or the Beatles or something. Mm. Um, this is when they went full-on clanky, though, because yeah. they were, um, yeah. obviously, they were, they were on mute records and they had their background in that whole um, scene and also they were linked with some bizarre records um, prior to that. So mm. they kind of came up through that world of Einstein and Neubauten and indeed Test Department, who, as you mentioned, were on the cover of this week's NME. And um, they were um, shamelessly, but I think legitimately, borrowing that thing of hitting bits of metal together and using found sounds um, and, and converting it into pop rather than an art statement. And I, I think it really works on this on this record. I, th- I, th- I think it's it's a it's a really great single, even uh, despite the uh, slightly embarrassing lyrics about uh, a turning point in a career in Korea being insincere. I mean, one takeaway from this performance is that they're doing all that, like you say, Simon, but they're also visually they're starting to back away from the synths. You know, they're introducing. They are, aren't they? They've got one of them Arabic bassoon things that you or someone else will know what they're called. Well, I was hoping somebody else would know. Oh, yeah, and that's uh, that's Andy Fletcher, isn't it? Yes. Um, playing that or pretending to play that pipe thing, because I think I'm right in saying that Fletcher doesn't actually do anything on their records. That's mm. what we're led to, to to believe anyway. There was there's that quote from Gavin Edwards in Rolling Stone uh, mm. that uh, he goes, um, "Depeche Mode's unique division of labour has long been established, with each of the three remaining members having a, a distinct role." Martin Gore writes the songs, Dave Garn sings them, and Andy Fletcher shows up for photo shoots and cashes the checks. <laughs> so. Um, in this performance, he's there to hold that that long mm. red wooden instrument and pretend to play it. But yeah, they're they're, they're bringing acoustic instruments in yeah. uh, at least at least visually. Whether they're really yeah. using them on the record, I don't know because I looked on the no, yeah. credits. I, I for, think um, it's a joke. I think it's a visual yeah. joke because so it's actually the, a synth noise. Yeah, apart from the yeah. melodica which mm. Martin Gore plays, which yeah, I he think, gets that out near the end, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. which I think is actually the, the sound you hear on the record. Mm. All that other stuff. It's all sense. They're, they're yeah. playing real drums and that, that weird horn and reed instrument and a xylophone. Mm. And yeah, they're they're all electronic sounds. They're not, none of them are. None of those actual things are on the record at all. Mm. Uh, so I think I think that's a, a a little a little visual gag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Martin Gore has his top off again. And, and it's again, and it's. He loves it's getting his nips a, out on top of the pops, doesn't he? He does, and he's got his top off in a kind of a meaningless way, if you know what I mean. Yes. Because, right, it isn't it isn't butch, he's, he's not showing off any muscles, and it isn't punk either, do you know what I mean? No. Um, it's like he's forgotten to, to dress. Yes. He's forgotten to get dressed, and and he's confused, like basically like he's having an anxiety dream yes. about fighting himself <laughs> half-naked in front of the entire United Kingdom on <laughs> television. But can you imagine a muscle-free man going topless in a pop performance now? Mm. It's unthinkable. No. And the best thing is he's not even properly skinny because they've obviously been on tour or in the studio, like eating crap Mm. and 
maybe drinking too much. And he's just got the beginnings of moobs just gently mm. jiggling there as yes. he bops around, uh, trying to outdo Paul Weller for puny yeah. homoeroticism. Yeah, why are, they, uh, why are they doing that this week, man? Just throwing themselves at us. It's not It's, it's not it's right. Something in the air. It's, it's, the and it's, hot, it's hot weather. And it's such a weird contrast with Dave Garn, right? Because... Uh, Dave Garn's got that button-down shirt, skinny mm. tie, nice suit, and all of that. In fact, um, I've probably mentioned this before, but he really reminds me of me at that age, or certainly my best-case scenario idea of what I could aspire to look like. Um, <laughs> although he does remind me of a goose as well a little bit, and I don't know <laughs> look like a goose. Um, but yeah, um, I, I, I quite quite dug his, his kind of... Sort of smart, slightly preppy, but still, um, you know, vaguely alternative look. And I thought I could, I could rock that. Um, but yeah, it's it's just a weird contrast with with Gore going like for the kind of, you know, escapee from a um, fetish club look. I think this is possibly my favourite Depeche Mode single, just because it's a mix of all the things I quite like about them without so much of the stuff I don't you know and it's mm. got a it's got a nice clattering arrangement uh, with a bit of extra texture in it and the, the words are really silly and puffed up but they're not <laughs> they're not overbearingly pompous and stupid and it's got a genuinely gorgeous chorus and um, you know it's just a record and a performance that's full of ideas most of which are good and the ones that aren't good are still entertaining. And and in a way, that accidental mismatch between the good ideas and the silly ideas works as well as the very deliberate mismatch between beautiful sounds and ugly sounds, which is musically what this record's all about. Mm. Uh, the reason it's so ear-catching is that it it's all about the trade-off between those sort of ugly, industrial, clanking sounds uh, and the the lovely harmonies and the the little the little uh, melodica solo and stuff. Yeah, um, it's a really well put together. I mean, put together is the word, but it's a really well put together record. And everything else I ever would have to say about Fresh Mind, I've already said on previous podcasts. But yeah, you know, still at this point, fair play to them. Yeah, it is put together. I mean, the album that it came from is called Construction Time Again, which is yeah. obviously a little joke there. Um, and on the credits, it's, it doesn't say anything about uh, what anybody individually does. It doesn't even mention any instruments. It just credits Depeche Mode as, you know, songs. And this someone else, I think it's Daniel Miller, uh, credited as Tonmeister. What a shame it doesn't say no synths like a Queen <laughs> album of the 70s. <laughs> yeah. Anything else to say? No. No, no I'm, I'm saving it till next time with you, no. Depeche Mode. Yeah, you got to. Yeah, save it for the next episode. <laughs> <laughs> so the following week, Everything Counts nipped up four places to number six, its highest position. And the follow-up, Loving Itself, got to number 21 in October of this year. Talking of counting, let's look at those all-important numbers in the hit parade as we count from 20 right the way up to the number 11 spot in this week's charts. Here it is. Roman Holiday at number 20 with Don't Try to Stop It. 
At number 19, come live with me, heaven 17. The police at number 18, wrapped around your finger. The creatures are up to number 17 with right now. And this week's number 16, Mike Oldfield, Moonlight Shadow. Up to number 15, Rocket, Herbie Hancock. It's late, Shaken Stevens at number 14. At 13, Cruel Summer, Banana Armor. Brand new at number 12, it's Spandau Ballet and Gold. And at number 11, here's Robert Plant with Big Log. West Bromwich in 1948, Robert Plant was a labourer for Wimpy in the late 60s while singing with bands such as the Crawling King Snakes, Band of Joy and Led Zeppelin, neither of whom recorded any hit singles. After his last band split up in 1980, Plant was accepted for a teacher training course but was encouraged by Phil Collins to have a go at a solo career instead. Imagine that. Yeah. First day at school and like Robert Plant is there. Yeah. In front of you. Screaming at you. Screaming at you in sort of like lace-up trousers, you know, very with a very tight crotch, but sort of kick flares at the bottom. And um, yeah. some kind of waistcoat, probably. What would he have taught? Biology. He released his first solo LP, Pictures at Eleven, in 1982. And his debut single, Burning Down One Side, got to number 73 in the UK in October of that year. This is the follow-up to Pledge Pin, which was unreleased in the UK, and it's the lead-off single from the new LP of the same name. And we're being treated to the video, which has been shot in Las Vegas, Death Valley, and the Calico Ghost Town in California. And it's up this week from number 15 to number 11. I like how um, Richard Skinner introduces this, because he goes, and at number 11, here's Robert Plant with... And there's a little pause, and he goes... Big log. And I, I like to imagine Skinner is showing just the slightest trace of a sense of humour there. Because, yes, because yeah. the fucking title is hilarious. So, I mean, is it about crimping one off? You know, making a little mm. brown fish, dropping the kids off at the pool? Because that's what mm. it suggests to me. Big log. Well, I <laughs> yes. I read somewhere that the title is actually a reference to a driver's log book where they write down the hours they've spent on the road, which would make sense considering the lyrics and the video. But I'd also say there's maybe also a 60-70% chance that he means his cock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Not having know. a dump. Yeah. It was quite easy to be a 15-year-old in 1983 and not have heard one tune by Led Zeppelin. Didn't have an older brother who was ahead. Didn't listen to that those radio shows you never really saw them on the telly they were they were just a hippie band to me well my best mate was a sort of metaler so i knew about it but yeah i think i'd only heard of led zeppelin because they were local heroes or robert Mm. plant was uh of which more later but yeah this Mm. is um (laughs) it's a bizarre single isn't it because it sounds Mm. like nothing on the first three listens uh and it's Mm. really just a showcase for Robert Plant's stupid lyrics and that meandering Stratocaster playing by Robbie Mm. Blunt and his troublesome parrot. 
which is <laughs> is very nice, but it's a bit noffler and it's very not, not yeah. yeah, not exactly. Catchy, I, I actually had to it? check that it wasn't noffler when I heard this again. You know, yeah, and the video is. Um, this video is directed by Storm Thorgerson and Aubrey Powell, otherwise known as right. Hypnosis, yeah. uh, who designed all those 70s Pink Floyd sleeves um, and others by people like UFO and uh, the Scorpions. Yeah. And all. I sort of their trademark being that sort of queasy tableau, which looks like a yeah, like a something cooked up by an ad agency on LSD. But like, how dare you by 10cc being a classic? Word. Yes. Yeah. But what's interesting is how easy it is for them to slide straight from that to those early 80s pretentious music videos, um, which mm. were for them what punk was for Iggy Pop. You know what I mean? It's like they'd already done mm. it. It's that same sort of meaningless uh, symbolism and uh, sort of. Uh, laid back surrealism, um, and it's yeah. It's, but the whole the whole effect is really strange and not what you would uh, associate with something you were going to release as a single. Yeah, I tell you what's incredible though. This late middle aged man is thirty four, and I know we do this a lot. I know, and he'd had a stressful few few years leading up to this. In fair, yes, he had. Yes, but fucking up. He's not the leonine rock god of how the West was won on this, is he? He's got footballer mm. hair, he's really bad hair, and this kind of cut-off shirt and high-waisted jeans. But it looks like big country's mum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and his jawline is collapsing. He's got lines on either side of his mouth, like Leonard Cohen, uh, and his skin looks yeah. like he borrowed it off someone two inches taller. Um, all the signs of ageing which we normally associate with at least being in your mid-40s and here he is looking Mm. like that he probably looks better for his age now doesn't he than he did at that exact point yeah yeah well he's he's embraced the the Lord of the Rings creature thing now hasn't he Mm. this video cracks me up it's as as soon as I saw the very first shot of a deserted petrol station no a a gas station I should say yeah yeah yeah. Uh, and, and you know he's he's driving in the desert in America in a big car with tail fins. It's such a video cliche, which you see time and mm. again on things like uh, um, Roger Waters' "The Pros and Cons of Hitchhiking," and it was yeah. it's, it's just such a trope that you know that sort of tumbleweedy look. And um, to the extent that uh, when um, Noel Gallagher and his high flying birds did a video like that about <laughs> four years ago, with no apparent. Irony, I absolutely pissed myself that, you know, mm. he was doing that for real. Um, so we start off and he's in he's in that deserted petrol station, gets himself a drink out of the fridge. Then we go to this kind of um, sort of Mexican-looking ghost town because it's all shot in Nevada and uh, California and stuff like that. And um, Plant sees some guy in a cowboy hat dragging this Spanish-looking lady around by her elbow and she's trying to shake him off, and it, it looks a bit worrying, really. And then they come to the actual door and go through the door where Plant is sitting, and does he help her? Does he fuck? He just sits no. there, tearing up some old photos into shreds, which then become feathers when he throws them in the air. Yeah, but he's mm. used to that sort of thing, because he's seen Rhodes procuring girls for Jimmy Page. 
<laughs> and then and then we're in some kind of roadside diner bar and, and he's leaning against the wall yeah. all moody and and we see that he's made a cat's cradle with some string like yeah why like, like he's showing his mum like look mum look what i've done like he's a clever boy yeah and then it's like an old school room somewhere and then a, a swimming pool with glass sides and it is him swimming isn't it that, that we yeah um, what, why are the pop stars showing us their nakedness this episode, man? It's just because yeah. he's wearing like proper dad trunks as well, isn't it? <laughs> I, I have to rewind three times to check that it is him, but it is him, definitely. Yeah. Oh, oh really, Simon? <laughs> <laughs> and he's he's wearing these really nasty dad trunks, and he's doing the the frog leg kicky thing that's most unseemly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. <laughs> what this video's like is it's like. Watching your mate playing Grand Theft Auto, and he's gone out to the desert, and and he's just fucking about and doing nothing of interest. <laughs> oh, get in the car and drive for a bit, and then oh look, I'll go for a swim. Yeah, and it's like look, just do something, just kill someone, do yeah, the yeah. fucking mission, <laughs> and turn this fucking music off. It's getting on my tits. <laughs> It's the kind of shit you'd see on Whistle Test or the Tube. Yeah. Well, it's weird, isn't it? Because um, it can't have been the loyalty of Led Zeppelin fans that made this a fairly big hit. No. Because his previous single didn't, and neither did the subsequent no. one. So what, no. what, what? what is it about this that somehow caught on? I really don't get it. It's not like it was in a film or anything, was it? No. No. It's got Phil Collins on drums. Phil mm. Collins, who advised him to try a solo career in the first place and it does sound so much like dire straits that i I had to check yeah that it's not not flirt um it is indeed um the guitarist is is robbie blunt who was in silverhead now silverhead um in in case you don't know were a short-lived 1973 sort of glam metal band led by Michael Debar who was later of of the Power Station and they also had uh, future Blondie member Nigel Harrison on bass and um, Silverhead are best known for um, their startlingly sleeved uh, album 16 and Savage. Oh, um, fuck, yes. Which has, has a sort of sexploitation photo of, of a underage looking girl in the mirror and it's, yeah, it's really quite startling. Um, and an album which as well as the callously sleazy title track has a song called uh, More Than Your Mouth Can Hold. <laughs> Wonder what attracted the attention of uh, members of Led Zeppelin. <laughs> mm. The important thing here, though, is that my mum used to make cheese rolls for Robert Plant. No! <laughs> yeah, she worked behind the bar in a pub in Kidderminster, and she Fuck. was responsible for the catering. Um, and he lived nearby, um, because contrary to popular belief, he wasn't actually from Kidderminster. Like me, he was mm. born in West Bromwich. And I think yeah. he grew up in like Hales Owen or somewhere, but he bought a place when he got big that was just outside Kidderminster. And yeah, well, why not? Well, where else? Live the dream. And he would come in at lunchtime for a couple of pints and a cheese roll and all the staff would whisper. Um, and according to my mum, he had lovely hair. What did he have in his cheese rolls? Uh, cheese, I think. Yeah, nothing, no no accoutrements? I didn't get down to that level of detail, unfortunately. <gasps> Why not? Fuck's I know, sake. I know. I he know. had a bit of lemon squeezed till it ran down his leg. <laughs> <laughs> it's a funny one, though, because he is a local hero because there isn't really anyone else. Um, and although he wasn't from Kidderminster, he did used to play, uh, like he was in Band of Joy, who were mostly a Kidderminster band. Um 
So mm. he so he did cut his teeth there. Uh, in fact, Band of Joy's lead guitarist taught me to play guitar when I was eleven, uh, because he gave guitar Fuck. lessons in a room above a music shop in Kidderminster. Because when Jimmy Page made his trip to the Black Country to scoop up John Bonham and Robert Plant, he didn't need a guitarist. That's a shame. Uh, but Robert Plant mm. started off playing in the clubs there when there were clubs to play in. And the thing that I've never understood is how he got away with it because Kidderminster is one of those places where if you poke your head up, you can expect to have it knocked down again immediately, right? So when I was learning the guitar, mm. if I even mentioned it to my mates, they'd scream with laughter and rip the piss. Uh, they'd never heard me play. They just thought it was hilarious that someone from Kidderminster mm. was learning the guitar, like getting ideas above your station, you know. So when I think <laughs> of Robert Plant's singing style and stage act, which was all in place by the time he joined Led Zeppelin, as you can see from the, yeah. the best thing Led Zeppelin ever did, which is the black and white clip of them playing in a TV studio in Denmark or somewhere, around about the time of the first album, mm. when they're, they're great, before they got really, really indulgent. Uh, I can't understand how the people of Kiddy ever stood for this, all that uh, preening and hair tossing you know what I mean and the screeching mm. and the, the baby 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 and later that would become the language of heavy metal and it was uh, mm. all across the West Midlands it was just the normal way to sing uh, but him doing that in yeah. a pub attic in front of like 80 troglodytes in the 60s when <laughs> everyone else was in an earnest blues band my theory is that he had to ramp it up like that so that you were left in no doubt that this was a performance, right? Like a pantomime. Yeah. Like he was wearing a mask. Because if anyone from Kiddy, even for a second, thought that this was a man honestly expressing himself, I'm pretty certain he'd have been laughed off the stage in a minute. Um, but yeah, he was he was a local hero and still is. Last time I was back in Kidderminster, I was looking at this gimmick that they've invented to try and interest people in the now otherwise practically deserted town centre, right, like all provincial towns. Like when I was a kid, it used to be perpetually mm. bustling because Kidderminster's the one largish town in the area and people from all the little towns mm. would drive into shop there. And now, of course, it's just it's like every other post-industrial town in Britain. It's full of empty shops and phone mm. shops, pound shops, Pick and mix sweet shops, trainer shops, e-cigarette shops, and Greg's, and about three yeah. people with St George's flag tattoos shouting into mobile phones, you know, and me and my mum walking mm. around because we're old and stupid, and we live in another era where <laughs> walking into town is a logical thing to do, you know, as if this was still yeah. a community in any meaningful sense. But the council or someone has paid for something called the Kidderminster Musical Heritage Trail, which is a few little plinths shaped like stacks of vinyl albums with blurb printed on the label where the track listing would be, giving you the lowdown on Kidderminster's glorious musical heritage, for which it's justly <laughs> world famous, right? And one of them says, uh, Led Zeppelin's drummer, John Bonham, played in many venues around Kidderminster. Born in Redditch, he lived and is buried in nearby Russia. So not from Kidderminster then. And then yes. the one next to it <laughs> makes the boldish claim that 
Clifford T. Ward is widely regarded as one of England's finest ever songwriters. He was born in right. Starport-on-Seven and taught at a school there. <laughs> so also not from Kidderminster. Oh, Although he loved our little town so much that he did write a song about the nearest major city, which is his song Birmingham, which... Is sort of okay, but it doesn't necessarily sound like the work of one of England's greatest ever songwriters. It goes, Birmingham, don't mean the one over in Alabama. Yeah. And then the one next to that says, Kidderminster Choral Society was formed in 1899. Sir Edward Elgar became the society's president Mm. in 1927. Well, he wasn't from Kidderminster either. And you realise that Kidderminster's musical heritage is just a load of people coming to the venues in Kidderminster, performing and leaving, (laughs) which makes it not so very different from quite a lot of English towns because basically it was a big music town in the 60s but in a mostly passive way because it was a second Mm. division stop on the concert circuit Um, and it just had a lot of clubs like Frank Freeman's Dancing School uh, which was where my mates went to get disco dancing lessons in the late 70s which is a little attic room that where like Captain Beefheart and people like that played and there's like a famous live bootleg of Captain Beefheart playing there um, but yeah the best thing about this redecoration of the town centre is they've now put up all these badly painted murals on the, these buildings by the canal oh, of right. all the bands which once played there like, literally once played there in many cases Jeez. so it's a bit embarrassing but it does mean that Kidderminster is if nothing else, the only medium-sized post-industrial town in the country with a picture of Captain Beefheart and his magic band in the <laughs> shopping mall opposite a branch of Card Factory. Um, so something to be proud of, at least. But Robert Plant's still there. I believe so. I think he's still got his place. What are they are going to do when he dies, man? They'll probably embalm him and put him on the buses or something. <laughs> Just make sure that... Uh, for anyone who didn't see it the first time round, you put in the video playlist that wonderful YouTube oh, yes. of him performing in uh, the shopping centre in Kidderminster for charity yes. with a backing band of off-duty policemen. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favourite things. Anything else to say, chaps? Um, his album at this time had the incredibly pretentious title The Principle of Moments. <laughs> And uh, I had to look it up, so in case anyone wants to know, the principle of moments, a.k.a. Varignon's theorem, states that the sum of torques due to several forces applied to a single point is equal to the torque due to the sum resultant of the forces. Do you understand that? Not a fucking clue, mate. I mean, that's that's fairly simple, right? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So the following week, Big Log dropped one place to number twelve. I'm still childish enough to laugh at Big Log. I'm yeah, sorry. yeah. No, no, no worries, mate. <laughs> the follow-up in the mood would only get to number eighty-one in December of this year, and he'd have two more top forty hits over his career. However, his old band finally made it into the UK singles charts when a re-release of Whole Lot of Love got to number 21 in September of 
is going to be leaving that exotic location and later this year he'll be on stage with this new band here all over the United Kingdom. Robert Plant, the big log. Here now, the big rest of the chart. And at number 10, everything counts for Depeche Mode. Up to number 9, I'm still standing, Elton John. This week's highest new entry, at Paris, the Style Council. At number 7, who's that girl, Eurythmics. Steady at six, The Crown from Gary Bird and the GB Experience. At number five, Wham! in the Club Tropicana. It's number four, Double Dutch, Malcolm McLaren. Down to three, IOU, Freeze. Last week's number one is down to two, Paul Young, Wherever I Lay My Hat. They have the numbers ten to two, but we have a new number one. It's KC and the Sunshine Band. Give it up! Give it up! After shilling Robert Plant's forthcoming UK tour, Vance and Skinner break down the top ten before introducing the brand new number one, Give It Up, by KC and the Sunshine Band. We've got to talk about Tommy Vance's uh, handover here, where um, the party mood is cranking up a bit because people are throwing tinsel over him, and he clearly hates it. He does some kind of weird twitch in the middle of it, as if he's being hit with a sort of like cattle prod or something. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's it's this kind of involuntary twitch at the horror for moving from his comfort zone of um, Robert, Robert Plant, yes, he'd have loved that into this disco bollocks yeah. that he's going to hate. Robert yeah, Plant, yeah. the big log himself. We've already covered Casey and the Sunshine Band in chart music number six, and since we last covered them in 1975, they've gone on to rack up six top forty hits in the UK and five number ones in the USA. After moving from TK Records to Epic in 1980 when the former label went bankrupt, they ran afoul of the Disco Sucks phenomenon and this single from the 1982 LP All In A Night's Work is their first appearance on the UK charts since Please Don't Go got to number three in January of 1980. However, for some reason, this song is selling like a bastard in the UK and has just jumped from number five to number one, knocking wherever I lay my hat, that's my home by Paul Young off the top spot, meaning that Harry Kayser, but not the Sunshine Band, is in the studio. He's brought a couple of backing singers with him, though. Well, he was essentially a solo act at this time, wasn't he? He's credited as Casey and the Sunshine Band in this country and a few other places, but um, a lot of other countries, he was just KC. Oh. So that that explains the absence of any kind of sunshine band. Is that what it is? I always assume KC stood for knobhead cunt, but I can <laughs> I can see him. I can see Mister Cunt, but I, there's no sunshine. But oh right, okay, that explains it. Yeah. Harry Wayne KC though does sound like a serial killer's name. You can see why, yes, he does. Why he it? went with the KC <laughs> thing instead. Um, mm. So yeah, the weird thing with this record is that um, the the disco sucks movement that you alluded to was so prevalent that. In the States, Epic refused to even release this because they thought Disco mm. was so dead. And he had to stick it out on his own label the following year and it got, it got yeah. to the 18. Um, I, I, I wish he'd not bothered <laughs> in this country, to be honest. I hate it. Mm. Um, I, I like a lot of um, their stuff, more, more yes. historically, you know. I mean, they were insanely prolific in bursts, Casey and the Sunshine Band. They, they released two albums in 1975 and two albums mm. in 1981. 
and they released ten albums in nine years, which I suppose for that era wasn't that weird, but it does seem like no. a, like a lot. And they were huge. I didn't realize this, right? They were um, the first group to have four number one hits in America in a single year, which was nineteen seventy five, since the Beatles. And, yeah. and he's talked quite a lot about um, this kind of almost Beatlemania that followed him around. And, and you just can't, you can't imagine. You just think of them as a sort of no. fairly second division disco band but they did do some amazing stuff i mean they they were kind yeah. of the house band it was him and um guy called uh, is it richard finch was the bassist and engineer um mm. they, they were the two kind of bedrocks of the uh, sunshine band and they became essentially the house band at tk records so that um they were responsible yeah. for that Miami sound in disco, which um, is brilliant little sort of subgenre of, of, of disco. If if you go looking into it, and of course yeah. he he wrote and produced "Rock Your Baby" by George McRae, which, mm. if I'm in a certain mood, is the greatest record ever made. And um, he also did "It's Been So Long" by George McRae, which is also bloody fantastic. And and even their own mm. stuff like uh, "Queen of Clubs" and "That's the Way I Like It." Even please don't yeah. go schmaltzy as it may be. Um, I, I got a lot of time for, but um, I, I I had this song on the Ronco compilation album, the Hit Squad chart tracking, um, which which uh, also funny <laughs> yeah. enough had had the Depeche Mode track on it, and I I used to skip over this one. Um, I, I I like his I quite like his uh, uh, his, his get up in in this performance. He's got that um, skinny. Um, shiny tie, the, the red shoes, the rainbow jacket, but they yeah. express a joie de vivre that Casey himself doesn't seem to possess. I know that he'd had mm. a serious no. car accident um, uh, a couple of years before this, and he'd been in a coma. Uh, um, he got hit head on, and he'd been paralysed for six months, and he had to Shit. relearn how to walk and dance and play piano. And put on his boogie shoes. On his boogie shoes. Uh his father died around this time as well, and you know mm. he suffered a lot of depression. He got massively into cocaine. Um, took him ten years to come out of it. He had a breakdown on the Oprah Winfrey show talking about that, and he doesn't right. really gaunt here, doesn't he? For a song that's mm. um, this big kind of summertime party hit, um, he hardly smiles. He has haunted, yeah. haunted yeah. eyes. He has the eyes of a man. Who, yeah, who knows? He does not look relaxed. He's got the eyes of a man who knows there's a dead body in his dressing room, and that sooner or later he's going to have to face up to what he's done. <laughs> yeah, the the really terrifying bit is where he occasionally will break into a, a short lived smile, like a, a forced smile, mm. uh, and then after a couple of seconds, it just drops. It just zoop, and it's gone, yeah. and that's the really chilling bit. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I didn't realise any of that. I just thought he just looked nervous, you know. He, I thought he looked like, like just before he went on stage, someone went, oh, by the way, the Inland Revenue are, are in tonight. <laughs> <laughs> just, it just doesn't look, doesn't look like he's uh, fully concentrating on his performance. Yeah. Uh, this is shit, isn't it? Uh, I mean, I hated this song at the time because it felt so dated compared to all the new stuff that was going on. Yeah. You know, the... It was still too early for for a for a looking back to the mid to late seventies. Yeah, it does sound really dated, but I mean, whether or not you like this record, I think probably depends on how you feel about wedding reception. <laughs> yes, I mean, so if you like that moment where everyone's finally pissed and it's got dark outside and the floor fills up, and even if you're actually there. 
the mood is such that it seems to have been filmed on an old VHS camcorder and sent to You've Been Framed. And <laughs> at any minute, a 66-year-old woman is going to go arse over tit and yes. reveal her massive baggy white cotton knickers for the, the amusement of people who find such things amusing. And if that's your scene, then this mm. record's going to sound wonderful and very evocative. Mm. Um, and if not, there's not really very much there, you know. Uh, but the terrible thing is, the first time I watched this episode, I was grimacing and swearing all through this song. Then went into the <laughs> kitchen and realised I was humming it, right? Like exactly as <laughs> critics are always said to do with million-selling turkeys like this. And I found that <laughs> bit depre- bit depressing, although not as depressing as a West Midlands wedding reception. I'll tell you one thing that's kind of uh, tickled my curiosity from uh, researching this is that, you know, um, certainly around 1981, um, a lot of previous kind of disco or cheesy pop acts had a crack at being new romantics so that there was um, there was a village people yeah. new romantic album there was a manhattan transfer oh, yeah. mm. new romantic album well yes um there's a casey a solo album from 1981 called called space cadet solo flight no. and uh, the front cover has him looking like a new romantic or a sci-fi character and i've um, illegally downloaded it right now i can't wait to have a listen <laughs> Because the other great one in that genre is the uh, Brotherhood of Man. Oh, did they? They, uh, they had a go. At- oh, yeah, I've seen it. I've seen it, yeah. They changed the name to BHM. Wow. And there's lots of plattered pink and cream headbands. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Martin looks exactly the same, <laughs> yeah. though. It would be hard to do much. Yeah, it's hard to do much. Well, you can't that. polish a turd, can you? Yeah. Titty be 31 by now, <laughs> so, you know. The best bit in this whole clip of knobhead cunt and the sunshine band is the in the instrumental break where a zoo male tries to flip a zoo female over his head you know that thing where you're back yes and you lock arms and one person bends forward and levers the other person up and over and it doesn't go very well because the ladies in zoo are not featherweight uh failed ballerinas like legs and co this is the 80s and they're a bit more solid and muscular, and that move isn't quite as easy for this geezer as he's anticipating it no. to be. And they just about avoid collapsing in a undignified heap. Um, but she still mm. has her skirt go over her head, like a you've-been-framed wedding reception granny. Uh, yeah. And that's all that matters in the <laughs> end, isn't it? For the dad still hanging in there, trying to glean as much... Dadisfaction as possible. I think Dadisfaction needs to show up in the chart music top. Yes, top ten again. Yeah, this this episode, in Bring fact, this period of pop music is kind of short on Dadisfaction. There's a lot more mm. uh, still single older brother disfaction. Yes, uh, yes. <laughs> There's a lot of dad infuriation, isn't there? Yeah. What was shaking Stevens in the sunset? <laughs> oh, yes, definitely. <laughs> yes, it's breaking all the rules of heterosexual yeah. rock and roll. So, Give It Up would spend three weeks at number one before it was usurped by Red Red Wine by UB40. Fucking hell. The follow-up, You Said You'd Give Me Some More, only got to number 41 in October of this year, and Harry Casey retired in 1985. Baby, give me a 
you have a new number one, Casey on the Sunshine Band. Baby, give it up. But tonight we've gone out with Herbie Hancock. He has got a good record out. It is called Rocket. Good night. Good you night. take care. Bye -bye. Vance signs off by telling us that the following artist has a good record out. Why, it's Herbie Hancock and Rocket. Born in Chicago in 1940, Herbie Hancock started his jazz career with Donald Byrd before joining the Miles Davis Quintet in 1963 and spending the rest of the 60s working with practically everyone on the Blue Note roster. After signing to Warner Brothers as a solo artist, he went all electric in the early 70s when he formed the Headhunters. However, he first came to the attention of the pop-crazed youngsters in 1978 when I Thought It Was You got to number 15 in September of that year and followed it up with You Bet Your Love, which made it to number 18 in March of 1979. After he guested on the Simple Minds track Hunter and the Hunted on the LP New Gold Dream, he went all electro-funk and put out the LP Future Shock. This is the first single off that album, assisted by a Godly and Cream director video with disembodied robot legs kicking up in the air and all sorts. And it's up this week from number 25 to number 15. First question, why didn't they finish with the video? I know, The video's right? amazing. It is amazing, yeah. those robot mannequins dance around a living room. Um, I, I knew someone who was scared of this song because of the video. Yeah. It's, it's, it's fantastic. And that hideous dummy baby spooning yeah. up his gloop. Yeah, it's really yeah. grotesque. Yeah. But why wouldn't you show it? It's Yeah, it's one of the greatest videos. Mm. And we've already seen plenty of the crowd, come on. Yeah, we've seen enough of them, haven't we? Yeah. Nice to get another look at gay bondage cap girl. Moving in a yeah, of course, a yeah, nice slow and sinuous way to this record. Yeah, I mean, I I was I was quite enchanted by the blonde girl in the black PVC Nazi hat, right? But um, yeah. the fucking Wembley foot tappers sweatshirt guy yeah. kept getting in the way, <laughs> yeah, cock blocking. Yeah, on, uh, still there thinking, oh well, surely my mates will come soon and we'll we'll do that routine. But oh, they better hurry up. Yeah, and if I get in front of the cameras, because uh, he'd have been be waiting. Yeah. Yeah, he'd have been waiting all through the episode for for this. Yeah, but if he's only just going to tap his feet at it, then that's it's not going to work, is it? Everyone in the crowd looks peak nineteen eighty three, whether professional or mm. amateur um, mm. dancers. Um, and yeah, it's it's not just that it hasn't dated well, but it's just that even at the time, you think, all right, come on, give us the give us the video because videos were so yeah. scarce at that time. You had to yeah. kind of. Get up at oh god, was it seven fifty a.m. to they'd show one on um, on ITV's breakfast TV thing, um, and yeah. he didn't even know what it was going to be. Just like a video, don't care what it is, they're going to play a yeah. pop video. That's yeah. what what a precious commodity they were. And when it's one as stunning as this, it's like oh come on, feed it to me because it is a great tune, isn't it? And for electro funk of that era, holds up really well, doesn't it? It's an absolutely amazing record. It's just so mm. exciting, just bursting with kinetic energy. And it was mm. I, it struck me as kind of weird, even at the time, for a jazz guy like Herbie Hancock to create an electro track and to basically, yeah. by doing so, getting on board with hip-hop because a lot of sort of proper yes. proper jazz musicians, proper musicians from the early generation, didn't want anything to do with hip-hop whatsoever. They saw it was fake no. and, you know, hated sampling and all that kind of stuff. Um mm. 
But I, I didn't know that thing about Simple Minds having um, an influence on him. That's really interesting. Um, mm. I guess I could have seen it coming if I thought about it, because I do remember the single I Thought It Was You, which mm. is very vocoder-based. It's kind of like almost yes. a... Proto- Brilliant, that song. Yeah, is. it's like a proto-Daft Punk track in a way. Mm. I say it's weird for a jazz guy to make a track like this, but if you actually strip it down and listen to, to the melody rather than the kind of nuts and bolts of it, um, the, yeah. the riff is actually pure... 70s cop show isn't it it's almost kind of starsky and hutch sounding very much so i think part of why he was so receptive to stuff like electro and hip-hop he'd gone a slightly different way to a lot of jazzers of his generation in that he went funky in the 70s yeah um and to me that's uh that's the stuff that i know best of his uh, apart from the stuff yeah. he did with miles davis i mean of his own solo stuff it's albums like you know headhunters and Man child mm. are the ones that I had when I was younger, and uh, yeah, get you. So, well, not that much younger, you know, but it's to me that it, there's a, a much more obvious line from that to uh, electro and hip hop than from where a lot of jazz people were in the seventies, you know. Uh, mm. But the weird thing about this, like a lot of people, or like most people, I know this record very well, but my autopilot brain always places it later than 1983 mm. and it was a real surprise when it came up at the end of this even though when I start yeah. to think about it I know that it's early 80s and I know he's drawing on electro stuff that was you know from the time but yeah it, he invents the sound of the the mid and late 80s on this record um yeah it's insanely ahead of its time only a couple of years but it's so dramatic mm. because nobody else sounded quite like this is that that mixture of the electro stuff and the what he does with the melody? It's you can hardly listen to it without seeing wiggly neon lines dancing around and brightly mm. coloured computer generated blocks flying through virtual space. All that stuff you associate with, you know, eighty six, eighty seven. I mean, it it doesn't yeah. sound like much of a compliment to say that someone effectively created the sound of the late 80s with one record but uh that's not his fault i mean if everyone who ran with this sound had made it sound as fresh and lively as this it would be a lot more of a compliment obviously um because this is amazing and yeah the fact that half the music of the next five years was patterned on it without the charm and without the guts you know what Mm. can you do yeah, and embraced wholeheartedly by the British record-buying public. Oh, yeah. It ended up in the top ten. I know. Well, I mean, it's irresistible for a start. Yeah. It's nice that in 1983, one of the great jazz musicians, who's 43, the same age as Tommy Vance, can mm. not only make a great and innovative and totally modern commercial record, uh, they can see it become a smash hit based purely on merit. And I don't yeah. know if that would have happened the same way a year or two later because the times maybe were a bit less open and anyone who was associated with jazz suddenly had to go through that yuppie coffee advert sort of anti-bohemian bohemian thing to get any attention, yeah. you know. So yeah. this record is clearly pointing forwards, but at the same time it's maybe a last gasp of something as well. So the following week, Rocket leapt seven places to number eight, where it stayed for two weeks. The follow-up 
Auto Drive got to number 33 in October of this year, his last top 40 hit. In 1985, however, Rocket was performed at the Grammys with a quartet featuring Hancock, Stevie Wonder, Thomas Dolbear and Howard Jones. <laughs> Up yours, Kershaw. <laughs> What's on the telly afterwards? Well, BBC One piles straight into fame, where Troy played by little Jimmy Osmond, falls in love with Julie. Then Judith Ann fancies having a go at being a surgical theatre nurse in Tomorrow's World at Large. Followed by the 9 o'clock news, the drama series The Life and Times of David Lloyd George, a study of two professors in the documentary series Campus, Tom Jones Now, with special guest Teddy Pendergrass, and finishes off with Lord Hailsham banging on about the events of 1963 in the 20th century remembered, and the last in the series of So You Want to Stop Smoking. BBC Two has just started Bird Spot with Tony Soper, and then the 1958 Paul Newman and Elizabeth Taylor film Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. That's brilliant. I absolutely love that film. Sorry, carry on. (laughs) (laughs) Then highlights of the cricket. Some of Britain's top country and western acts performing blazers in Windsor for Country Cousins, Newsnight, and more sexy, sexy open university action. ITV piles into the TV film The Hunted Lady for their murder mystery suspense strand, followed by the documentary series European Connections, News at 10, then the documentary series about the blind I simply can't see, and finishes off with The Gangster Chronicles and Father Anthony's story blathers on about God in keyholes into life. Channel 4 looks at traditional fishermen in Chile in The Last Sailors, then Soap, the Tom Bell drama Out, alternative comedy in Bookham and Risk It, and finishes off with What the Papers Say. So, what are we talking about in the playground tomorrow, me dears? Inevitably, the Style Council. Um, Mm. Probably a bit too awkward um, among my friends to be talking about the gay stuff, but Mm. um, also considering growing out my hair so that I can slick it back like Paul Weller and maybe wondering what sort of wet look gel he's using there. Yeah, Brill Cream, Simon. Uh, See, I wouldn't have used Brill Cream because that would have been too granddad for me. You know what I mean? That's what I I was averse to. I thought, come on, we're in the 80s, it's got to be gel. You know what I mean? Brill Cream, my dad was still using it. Yeah, but maybe that was a thing. Of course, it's all academic now, you know. Those that that ship has sailed for me, sadly. But you know. But yes, style council's gay shame, as yes. <laughs> would have dominated the conversation. I mean, my mate would have been uh, impressing on everyone that this was a piss take to have a go at bummers like Duran Duran, um, <laughs> and everyone else would have been raising an eyebrow. Do you think he got that from the pissing about in the punt? Did Did he think that was their jokey recreation of Rio? <laughs> I don't know about that. Um, also, this is this is Duran Duran, who uh, famously had a video with like women smeared in like shaving foam and stuff, writhing around on in, in a boxing ring, and God knows what. Yeah, well, maybe they, he hadn't seen do, that. They've got to do something while Duran Duran and bombing each other, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> you know, got to make your own yeah, entertainment. Yeah. But that, yeah, that would have been it. That and also why that old bloke was singing about a log. Yeah. <laughs> and what are we buying on Saturday? Well. Immediately, the Style Council's A Paris EP, as yeah. kids at my school said it, because <laughs> um, nobody pays any fucking attention in French lessons except me. Um, and 
Uh, in a car boot sale years later, um, The Creatures and Herbie Hancock. Yeah, I'd have been buying Long Hot Summer to show how broad-minded I was. And uh, yeah. I imagine I would have sort of picked up that Locust Eaters record and then maybe put it back down again and not really <laughs> known why. I just don't feel comfortable. I don't feel comfortable around it. And what does this episode tell us about the summer of 83? That it's okay to be gay. <laughs> But you don't have to if you don't want to. <laughs> yeah, well, confusion reigns. And in the short term, uh, that's still beautiful, just about. And that, me dears, is the end of this episode of Chart Music. All that remains for me to do now is cock up in my usual manner the URLs I want to throw you at. So our website is www.chart-music.co.uk. You can reach us on Facebook, facebook.com slash chartmusicpodcast. You can get involved with us at Twitter, uh, chartmusictotp, and you can chuck us some money, patreon.com, chartmusic. Thank you very much, Taylor Parks. Mm, yeah, hello. <laughs> That's wrong, isn't it? I was just looking out of the window. I forgot I had to say something. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, sorry for yeah. boring you, Taylor. <laughs> Yeah, no, 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 no. So I was just thinking about what I was going to have for for tea. Uh, <laughs> uh, such is the such is the yeah. dedication or to chart music. Else now I'll say. Uh, yeah, whatever. I'll, thanks, I'll, I'll thanks say. for bothering. Thank you, Simon Price. The pleasure was partly mine. My name's Al Needham. Stroke my earlobe. <laughs> <laughs> Chart music. Boom a dog, boom a dog, he's coming to your school. Boom a dog, boom a dog, with this robbing tool. Your school playground is our bits away ground. He likes to get down with the kids. Boom a dog, boom a dog. Watch your backs. One morning, on a very grey day, Bama Dog was in his house, listening to his favourite podcast. Which is like saying you should enjoy drinking the contents of condoms that you found on the adventure playground because you like sex. You know, it's like, this is just... And he suddenly had an idea. I know, said Bama Dog, I'll become a pop star. I could start a synth band called the Canine League. Listen to the voice of Bama Dog. Or form a heavy metal band called Iron Bummer Dog. Run to the school! Run for your life! Or be a rapper called Bummer Doggy Dog. One, two, three, and to the four. Bummer Doggy Dog knocking kids to the floor. Biatch! And off he went to the local music shop. When Bubba Dog got there, he stared and stared at all the instruments in the shop window. And then, he saw something quite amazing. The reflection of a school playground right behind him. And he was off like a shot. Bubba Dog! 
And then, all of a sudden, there was Custard. Oh dear, bummer dog. Bummer dog, bummer dog, he's had his fun today. Bummer dog, bummer dog, the teacher's chased him away. Bummer dog. <laughs>